Happy Thanksgiving to you and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes Thanksgiving special holiday podcast that we're doing. Uh, so we're so glad you could join us. We've got a bunch of guests coming up, including some lit managers, some writers, and the mod staff from the Scripts and Scribes Discord, which we have, if you haven't uh, visited, come check us out on Discord. It's a live chat that's ongoing 24 uh, seven. Obviously I'm not on there all the time, but I am there a lot. Uh, you can find it in the link below or go to the scriptsandscribes.com website. And on the sidebar is a link to it. So if you want to join us there, you are more than welcome to. We'd love to see you there. And uh, yeah, we've got a couple guests waiting in the waiting room for our Zoom chat. If you're watching on uh, YouTube, that's great. Welcome. Hello. Uh, and if you are listening, then welcome. Hello as well. Uh, but let's start inviting people into this Thanksgiving special podcast that we've got going on. Um, first off, we have uh, Brendan Gallagher. Brendan Gallagher. Hey, I see Brendan. How are you, buddy? Hey, hey, hey how's it going? Good. Um, and Brendan, if you uh, haven't heard his podcast, which you can definitely check it out on the scriptsandscribes.com website, he is a staff writer on Warrior Nun, and he has been support staff on just about, I don't know, half the shows in television. So he's, he's a, a veteran, um, and he's a great guy. He's Super smart, probably too smart for his own good, but, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, That's welcome. very kind. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to hanging out with everybody. Yeah, let's see who else we have here. We have Andrew Zuber. Hey, Andrew, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. Good. Andrew has been a writer on uh, the Disney ABC sci-fi crime, crime drama series Stitchers, and interestingly enough, Nickelodeon's animated comedy Rainbow Butterfly Unicorn Kitty, showing his diverse skills. Um, he's also a magician, which we will definitely hit you up for a magic trick or two. Happy Thanksgiving. Absolutely. Same to you. Um, and he's a real magician, not like those fake wizards in like Harry Potter, but like the real <laughs> ones at the Magic Castle and stuff like that. Um, the broke ones. Right, right. Yeah, there you go. Uh, we have VY Bars, who is one of our mods at the uh, Discord, the Scripts and Scribes Discord, which, as I said earlier, if you haven't uh, checked it out, definitely come check it out. Uh, you can find it in the link below. There's a link below, or if you go to the scriptsandscribes.com website, uh, it's in the sidebar. Um, and let's see who else we've got coming in. Um, we've got more people coming in. There's Catherine Burgess. Welcome, Catherine, from live from Alexandria, Virginia. Another one of our uh, uh, wonderful mods at the Scripts and Scribes Discord. Um, your student where? Uh, James Madison. Uh, James Madison. My wife went to James Madison University. Oh. Yeah, she studied communications there. Um, and VY, you're from Bulgaria, but you're now outside of London? Oh, I can't hear you, VY. I can see you. Maybe you can sign language for us. <laughs> Sorry, my microphone was oh, there out. There we go. Okay, there we go. There we go. Hey, look at that. So you're from Bulgaria originally? Yes, that's right. Oh, great. Um, so we're going to have a lot of 
conversations here, both about the industry and just sort of in general. Um, Scott Carr is waiting, so let's admit Scott Carr. He's a lit manager uh, from Management SGC. He's uh, terrific. Oh, there's also someone else here. Gustavo, who is actually a uh, uh, one of our mods from the Scripts and Scribes Discord, who is in Caracas, Venezuela. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Um, so let's see. Wow, people are showing up. So I do not see Scott or Gustavo just yet. Um, hey, there's Scott. I can see Scott Carr. Welcome, Scott. You're muted, but that's okay. Brendan has a friend. We, we just got a puppy, Brendan. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So we're very excited about that. My son is thrilled to have a little puppy around. We actually, it's so hard to get a, a dog of any kind during the quarantine. I mean, it's really crazy. We went to um, like shelters. You have to make appointments. And we, we contacted a bunch of breed rescues. And you get on a bunch of wait lists and things like that. And really all we saw were... Uh, like pit bull, pit bull mixes, and chihuahuas are a lot. Um, and I think if you get them as puppies, it's probably, or if you know their background, it's fine. But a lot of times they're turned in because they have sort of behavioral issues. And when you have a, a young child at home, I just didn't feel comfortable with that. So we ended up getting a puppy. Nice. Yeah, yeah I think I'm on record on this, uh, but I think every writer should have a dog. I think it's uh, really helps the creative process and, uh, helps you absorb rejection a little better because you're like, look how happy At least they love me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Though that we have this sort of, I'd call her a stray cat, but she kind of is taken care of by the neighbors named Skittles. And she loves to kind of run in front of the door and torment Goober. Uh, Goober is my dog's name. By That's the way. a great and, name. Uh, and so he's kind of, he's in his hunting pose right now. Oh, great. Um, and so I do see Gustavo from Caracas, Venezuela. Welcome, Gustavo. Uh, he is, where do you study film, Gustavo? Hello. <laughs> sorry, I, I was, sorry, right now I'm with meeting with, with actors for my thesis, short film. So, you know, if I'm, you know, a bit distant, sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry in Venezuela. So, you know, it's kind of hard, but everything is, is dope, you know. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for having me, though. Right, right. Um, and for foreign writers, uh, Scott did How's a great, great, great. Um, Scott, actually, Scott Carr, who's in the chat. Wave hello, Scott, if you could. Yeah, Scott is a lit manager. He actually discovered a writer, a uh, very talented writer. Um, in uh, South Korea, is that where you discovered? Uh... Yes, yeah, he was living in South Korea at the time. Uh huh. Yeah, which is amazing. Um, was it Jesse Pereira? Who? Uh, Johnny. Johnny Pereira, excuse me, um, who did uh, Miss Sloan. So he uh, he has a tremendous amount of experience, um, and he's just a great guy. So thank you for joining us, Scott. Um, and if you guys. Uh, you probably weren't here right at the beginning. Actually, I have someone else to let in really quickly. We've got uh, two more people. Um, so uh, Brendan is a, a staff writer on Warrior Nun. 
Um, Andrew uh, has written for Stitchers on uh, Freeform or ABC and a Nickelodeon show called Rainbow Butterfly Unicorn Kitty. We've got a bunch of our mods from the uh, Scripts and Scribes Discord. Um, Ian Shore just joined us. Ian, obviously, the screenwriter of Infinite and 1031 and the TV series Training Day, and he's a DJ. Uh, DJ Bam Boom, which maybe you can spin us a few tunes, although we're probably going to get struck for copyright when we post this on YouTube, so maybe don't do that. Uh, maybe you can just drop a few beats, like a beatbox. Do, you do, do DJs do that? They probably don't do that. Oh, I can't hear you, uh, Ian. Oh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> uh, listen, like, I, I don't think anybody needs to actually hear me beatbox. I feel like people can go their whole lives and never need to experience that. Uh, and uh, Remy Chevalier, is that, did I pronounce that right, Remy? Yeah, perfect. Well done. Yeah. Who is, are you still in the French Alps? Yep. Still there. Stuck the there. You're the, you're the one we're all envious of. You're quarantining in the French Alps, right? Yeah, but I can't go uh, farther than uh, one kilometer radius, so oh. I can't hike and everything. Oh, yeah. so you're, you really are quarantined out there. Yeah, this is uh, pretty much a lockdown. <laughs> right. Um, so we've got a bunch of TV writers here. We've got uh, a screenwriter here. We've got a manager here. Um, the four of you, VY and Catherine and Gustavo and Remy, do you have questions for our esteemed guests um, that you may want to address? Uh, yep, let me check. I thought about a few. Yeah. Oh, and as I mentioned, Scott is perfect for this because Scott is one of the few managers that I am uh, friends with that has actually discovered and rep clients from foreign countries. You know, his oh. client, Johnny Pereira, he discovered in an email in South Korea. We actually, again, have that podcast on the Scripts and Scribes website, so check it out. Um, but yeah, yeah he, is, he is not afraid. He finds great talent wherever it may be. So, oh, and, and you just were a quarter finalist for the final draft screenplay competition? Uh, yeah, correct? it was Big Break, final draft. Oh, Big, Big Break, break. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it came up uh, yesterday, I think it was. Congratulations on that. Thanks a lot, yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, questions, sh fire away. I'll be, actually, I have to close my door real quick. Hold on one second. But feel free to ask. I'll be right back. Um, okay. Well, I gotta, I gotta ask first. So, how did you find, you know, an artist worldwide? I mean, how's the process compared to the U.S.? Was that a question for Scott, or was that a question? I mean, for in general. I mean, sorry, I missed I mean, the question. Can you, re can you the repeat process? the question, Gustavo? Sure, sure, no problem. So, how is the process for for any of you? To, to find an artist, a writer, you know, whatever, uh, internationally compared to the U.S. I mean, what is the main difference besides, you know, language barriers? Um, well, the process of discovering them usually is done virtually, unless, you know, I happen to be introduced to them when they're in town, which means that, you know, usually people from foreign countries, I find, don't have the same kind of access or relationships. So they're usually reading at, reaching out over the internet or 
their entry costs, so they're reaching out to consultants. And by some method, that might eventually make its way into my inbox. And if I'm enticed by what I read, then, you know, at least it's some sort of like, you know, Zoom or FaceTime or something to get a sense of the person's personality and their expectations and how they ultimately want to work and aspire to create as an artist. And then, you know, I'm not as um, deterred by the geographical barriers because, you know, I think people are excited about voices from all over the world, especially because they bring different points of view because they have a different cultural experience or a different upbringing. Um, but it does mean that that person has to be willing to travel when necessary to Los Angeles to make, to make other relationships. That's a little pre pandemic where people were actually saying, I'd love to meet you. Now the world might be changing right, right. to the point at which people are like zoom is adequate. Although I do think an in-person meeting ultimately will forge a stronger bond and rapport. Um, and then depending upon if they're writers or writer directors or just directors, it's about creating opportunities for them, whether it's generating their own material to expose or introducing them to people who have my something they want to develop together. And that's when mm -hmm. it becomes, you know, pretty standardized where it's just about chasing opportunities or generating them. Um, yeah. And yeah. And the language barrier sometimes can be an issue if it's a second language and they're a writer because there's a high standard of writing and sometimes a second language might not have the same quality of voice on the page, but you know, barring issues like that, then I just find it's just people trying to connect with talented people. Uh, I want to jump in here a little bit because I think this is a question we get on every Scripps and Scribes event, yeah, I mean, at least I, the ones. I, I can, I, I can, I can see. Oh, I was just going to say, um, you know, I think what Scott said makes a lot of sense from a management agent perspective. Uh, as an artist, though, I always tell people, you know, you want to go where things are happening and where you're going to uh, be challenged and, and meet people who are doing what you want to do. And I'm not saying that Los Angeles is the only place for that, but I am going to say that every hub of art kind of functions differently. You know, I started out in New York for a few years before I moved out here. And like there is television in New York, but it's Law and Order or it's kind of stemming from that indie film, Noah Baumbach, Greta Gerwig kind of thing. So if you want to do something different than that, it's a question of like, is New York the best place for me to be? And I would scale that up to London or Tokyo or wherever you might be. You know, television still is happening in LA. And yes, you can maybe get a manager in another city. You can maybe communicate via Zoom. Uh, but when the pandemic ends, we all have vaccines. If you want to be in television, Hollywood is still where it's happening. And yes, you might be able to get a manager in it from another city. But can you, you know, go get drinks with someone you admire on another television show? Can you run into one of your favorite writers in an elevator? That's not going to happen anywhere but in L.A. So, you know, I'm pretty hard and fast on... If you want to be in TV, you should get out here if that's possible. And if it's not possible, you have to understand that the city you're in is going to impact the artistic ecosystem uh, that you have access to. Yeah, and, and to piggyback on that, there's obviously a, a proliferation of um, international productions that are going on where places like Netflix are looking to do more local language or at least internationally based content, film and television. So there can be 
advantages to not living in America or not being from America when it comes to singling yourself out in that type of ecosystem creatively as well. So, you know, I think it's not as much of a handicap as it used to be when it comes to your point of view. And I think Gustavo has to bolt. He actually just popped in from Caracas. He's actually doing, I don't know, rehearsals, I think, for his uh, student film, student thesis. So good to see you, Gustavo. Happy Thanksgiving. If you have Thanksgiving in Venezuela, thank yeah, yeah. probably not, or some other holiday. Th th thank, yeah. thank you for having me, and this was great. Thank yeah. you. We'll see Take you um, on Be Discord. Safe. Uh, anyone else have questions for uh, Scott Carr, for Ian Shore, for Brendan, uh, or for Andrew about TV or anything? Or we can just start talking about other stuff. Um, let's see. So because this is a Thanksgiving episode and we're all gathering for a Thanksgiving uh, for those, especially for those who may not uh, be able to go home for Thanksgiving because of dreaded COVID. Um, uh, what, uh, and this is also an entertainment podcast. Um, what are all of your favorite Thanksgiving holiday movies and or television shows? So why don't we Plains, start with... Planes, trains, and automobiles. Right. I was, was going to say the exact fun. same thing. That's yeah. my favorite movie of all time. So. Yeah. yeah. Solid. Those aren't pillows. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, Brendan, do you have a favorite? Gosh, you know, I, I was trying to think about something other than planes, trains, automobiles, but I really don't have it for Thanksgiving. So I'm just going to have <laughs> to have the same answer as everybody else. Ian? Uh, I'm going to have to go with the, uh, the fake trailer from Grindhouse uh, for Eli Roth's oh. Thanksgiving. Uh, like, that's a movie that I wish existed. Uh, like, I, <laughs> if that was, like, a real movie, I would watch that, like, at this time of year every year. Yeah, why didn't we... Uh, you're, of course, the person, one person to think of that would have been Ian, right? <laughs> um, Catherine, do you have a favorite Thanksgiving movie? Um... I mean, I guess people would consider it more of a Christmas movie, but I've always watched it at Thanksgiving. Is uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Okay. Like, that is, like, we watch it every year with my family. So, right. I don't know. It's become a Thanksgiving movie. Right. Because as soon as the uh, first bite of food hits, then it becomes Christmas time, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. VY, do you have any? I don't know if... <laughs> no, unfortunately, we don't celebrate that here. So, yeah. basically, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm surprised that nobody said uh, Adam's Family Values yet. Oh, okay, yeah. It's got that that amazing thanks first Thanksgiving play where they wind up killing the entire camp. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Remy, anything? Uh, so we don't celebrate uh, Thanksgiving yet, mm -hmm. but I imagine that it's a feel good movie kind of vibe. Yeah, holiday movie. Yeah. So I think I would go with uh, the Old Man and the Gun. I don't know uh, that. The, oh, it's the, uh, Robert, Robert Redford. Redford. Yeah. Okay. I think I'll go with that. Okay. A good uh, feel-good movie. Right. Right. Um, and since we're all sort of stuck in quarantine, some more so, like Remy and the French Alps, uh, what are some of the things that you have learned during quarantine, whether it's bread making or otherwise, <laughs> or some of the things you may you wish you have have had learned, like 
playing guitar for me, which never happened, but it's good in theory. Um, Andrew, is there anything you, you learned during quarantine or wish you had learned? Um, I was in Rome a couple years ago and I did uh, pasta making classes. And uh -huh. uh, so when I got, when this whole thing started, I reconnected with the married chef couple that I took the class from in Rome and they've been doing classes over Zoom. So I've greatly expanded my my uh, menu of Italian food options and I make way too much and then I eat it for a week and a half straight until I'm sick of it and then I've learned something new. So do you actually make from scratch? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is a, I don't know. I mean, even when I was in Italy, they're like... Most of the time, we just go to the store and buy dry pasta. You don't have to do this. <laughs> but I like to feel cultural. Right, right. I got you. So, uh, yeah. No, that's great. Uh, you probably have some happy neighbors. I don't, I don't even know if you can do that during the quarantine. Yeah, <laughs> I eat it all. I don't share. Uh, Brendan? You know, I... I have been making more cocktails uh, at home since I can't go to the bar. Um, I, I hesitate to call it a hobby per se, but I've tried a few, you know, to kind of justify uh, having a drink alone. No, I'm kidding. But, I, you know, I've made a few of those. But honestly, uh, my wife and I have been talking a lot about this. You know, we she's also a writer. And so working from home is kind of the norm for us. And so I'm not saying it's not been hard. Like, it definitely sucks not seeing people. Uh, but for me, like half the year is like this kind of anyway, except I can't go to the gym, you <laughs> right. know, so it, it hasn't been as like detrimental to me. And so I've kind of been keeping up most of my routine of like reading and writing and watching stuff and running to Griffith Park and back and walking the dog, you know, so, it, you know, I, I, I don't want to act like uh, Shawshank Redemption, like I could do this forever, you know, but uh, it's definitely, I haven't like found some great hobby to distract me from existential dread. Mm -hmm. I just saw something, I think it was Washington Post, but maybe it was a Times article that uh, dog owners, who, you know, owners who walk their dogs specifically have what, something like a 70% chance higher or chance of getting COVID. And they couldn't explain why that was, whether it was just the interactions, whether their dog picked it up in the environment and gave it to them when licking their face. I don't know what it was. Anyway, I think you and I are going to get COVID and I hope we don't. But, um, uh, VY, do you have, have, has you learned anything during quarantine or is there anything you wish you would learn during quarantine? Oh, yes. I'm learning Blender at the moment so I can start doing animation and it's actually going really well. Uh, that's 3D modeling software. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, I cool. remember you had shown a little bit of that in, in Discord, some uh, some stuff, some footage ah, from that. Yeah. Um, Catherine? Um, well, besides having to relearn calculus, um, I am slowly learning uh, ASL. And because it's something that's been, like, has always interested me. And I right. was like, well, I have time. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, Scott? Um, I haven't picked up any new hobbies per se. With the gym's clothes, I've had to be more creative with my workout. So I, a friend and I transformed his backyard into an outdoor gym slash obstacle course, which we've been using for the last six months. It's something I never would have done had I not been forced out of my gym environment, which has been, you know, a more creative and dynamic kind of working out, which I think has added some skills I wouldn't have developed this year physically. Right. And if you don't know, Scott is, is pretty yoked. 
Um, so it's, he's the kind of, if he's your rep, then you can always just brag. Yeah. Well, my rep can bench press your rep. <laughs> um, and Ian, have you, uh, you're, you DJ a lot. So I don't know if you need additional skills other than that. Right. Uh, well, I, I mean, I've been, um, uh, quarantining on, on Kauai for the past couple months. Oh, um, you lucky bastard. You. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is, uh, yeah, that's, that's oh, where I am right now. Gosh. Um, but, uh, I've been, um, so when I first moved to California, I started teaching myself how to surf and, uh, eventually just stopped making the drive out to the West side to do it. Um, but, uh, you know, here, you know, I'm five minutes from the beach. So I've been trying to, uh, you know, reteach myself how to surf when I'm 10 years older than the last time I went and way more out of shape. So it's been, uh, it's been a lot of slapstick comedy. It's like, it's, it's like, uh, in, in Kung Fu Panda before the Panda learns Kung Fu that that's, right. that's basically me on a surfboard right now. <laughs> uh, but, uh, outside of that, yeah, I've been teaching myself how to, uh, how to DJ on live stream. And, um, uh, my wife and I had a baby back in January. So I've been teaching myself how to be a dad. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. I forgot. Congratulations again. Uh, thank you. I have never wanted to jump through a uh, computer screen more than when I watch you in Kauai right now. <laughs> um, it's, it's pretty good over here. Oh my gosh! Uh, wow, can we? Is it raining? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, it's always it's always. It's raining. a warm rain, though, right? Yeah. So, it, like, Kauai is basically the wettest place in the world, and it rains th- like a little bit throughout the day, and then it'll be sunny for twenty minutes, and then it'll rain a little bit more. Um. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's why it's so green and lush mm-hmm. and um, why if, if you go hiking, you basically need to wear like crampons. Uh, these, <laughs> the, the, the entire island is made out of mud. What, what uh, island did they shoot Jurassic Park on? Do you know? This, this one. That uh, one? They, they, yeah, they, they shot uh, Jurassic Park, Avatar, Tropic Thunder, um, South Pacific a uh, billion Elvis movies, um, uh, what, what's it called, The Perfect Getaway. Um, yeah, they've, they've shot a lot out here. And just on a side note, when were they supposed to release uh, Infinite? Oh, uh, we were supposed to come out back in August. August, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, uh, yeah, we were supposed to come out August 8th, and then they, um, they moved us to Memorial Day weekend of next year. Although we'll we'll see if that actually happens or not because uh, when James Bond moved, um, Fast, uh, Fast and Furious Nine had to move as well. So F Nine moved to Memorial Day weekend, and I have a feeling that Paramount doesn't really want to go up against that little scrappy indie. Uh, so they're probably going to move us till later in the year. Uh, right. But don't quote me on that. Nothing's confirmed yet. It's just just a suspicion. Right. Right. And. I don't know if maybe you had input, uh, Ian or Scott. Um, the reason I say that is with the Wonder Woman release, both in theaters and in uh, uh, on demand, I think at the same time, how does that affect releases? How does that affect like you and your bottom line kind of thing? Um. You mean when they when they release a movie simultaneously right. at home and in a the theater? Yeah, I thought it was uh, just announced that Wonder Woman was going to do that. Yeah, yeah, they they, they are. Um, so it's 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 a complicated answer because you know as you know uh, a writer getting his first studio movie made, 
it's not like I'm getting, you know, real points on the back end. Like, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, a victim of Hollywood accounting just like right. everybody else. So, will, you know, is there a chance of me losing imaginary money uh, if they do a, <laughs> if they do a simultaneous theater and home release? Yeah, possibly. But since the money is imaginary, it doesn't matter. Um, like it, it'd be it'd be different if if you are somebody who's actually getting points on a movie, or if you're uh, the studio, the star, the director. Um, like like places like you know for for movies like um, Mulan or mm-hmm. um, uh, or Wonder Woman, where there's a big streamer already attached to them, like HBO Max being part of Warner, and you know Disney having Disney Plus. They they automatically have like a, a happy home to put that movie on and just hope that it gets them some some some, uh, some subscribers. If uh, if your studio isn't part of like a one of those big streamers, if you're not like part of Netflix, Disney Plus, um, or uh, or HBO Max, then it's a much dicier proposition to put the movie onto a streamer. Like you, especially if the movie is more expensive it means that you're leaving a lot of money on the table. Right. Welcome, John Zalzerny. Lit Manager Extraordinaire. All the secrets. <laughs> happy Thanksgiving. Wait, any of the secrets. Um, happy Thanksgiving, John. Thank you. Um, we were just talking about the Wonder Woman release, the simultaneous release. Um, and so Ian was talking about... Uh, you know, how that affected sort of his bottom line and the, you know, the imaginary bottom line, that kind of thing. Imaginary bottom line of the writer of a studio franchise. Right. <laughs> so do you or Scott have sort of input on, you think this is good or bad for the industry? Is this the way it's going in the future? Or is this just because of the pandemic? I mean, I think it's two things. I think it is mostly a scheduling thing, honestly, to some degree. I think they're looking out there and they're like, where you're running out of space in 2021 to put movies, you know, um, you're running out of weekends, you're running out of run up. I, there might also be um, like brand tie-ins and things like that, that there's a ticking clock on. We don't know all the pieces necessarily that they are tied to, you know? Um, And I think as well, you know, HBO max, um, you know, it's a great, it's, it's the biggest piece of content that they're going to have on there, the most exclusive piece of content that they're going to have on there. So, you know, I think those are the two things is that, you know, if you're looking at 2021, there are mo- big movies in production right now, you know, mm-hmm. um, or that have been, you know, ready to come out. And so you're kind of like, how much do we keep pushing this? And plus there is the HBO Max thing where you're like, you know, you can be like, oh, okay, this is, a, this is ad add benefit for long-term growth of our subscriber platform, you know, that we view as the future of our company. So those would be the two things. I mean, I don't think it's, it's hard to really figure out industry trends from that necessarily. It's weird because we're in this situation and we've been in for so long now that it's hard to imagine. It's weird. It was hard to imagine getting into it. Now it's hard to imagine getting out of it. But, you know, I think a year from now, hopefully things will, (laughs) be approaching normalcy and you know there just is a lot more money theatrically in movies than there is um in streaming it's just a basic fact you know um and so you know i I think things i I don't view this personally as being the norm um going forward i think but i think what will be a realistic proposition is if your movie especially a movie under a certain budget level um is 
either a big movie that's troubled or a small movie that you're just not getting the bang on it that you <coughs> hope that you're going to get um, that, you know, streaming is an option. I would look at Blumhouse weirdly was doing this for a long time where they would, you know, essentially produce a lot and finance a lot of movies. And then, you know, the ones that clicked you'd see in theaters and the ones that didn't click would just pop up on Netflix. You know, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of movies like that, that suddenly like were just on Netflix um, that had no, I think like the Joe Carnahan movie, for example, stretch, oh, yeah. things like that. Yeah. They, the the uh, Joe Johnson, Netflix. not safe for work, like yep. uh, uh, <coughs> Mockingbird, like all, all these really big directors wind up, wound up in like the, the Blumhouse graveyard. And so I think that was weirdly a um, hint of what's to come um, is that, is that, you know, if your movie, if it, they don't see a really clear theatrical, theatrical, it's what used to be almost direct to DVD back in the day. But I think the streaming thing is, is a better option for studios because they're trying to increase what's going on for them. So I think that will be the ongoing thing. Um, and I know that with deals now, producers are having to work in, um, because, you know, producers so much is built upon, like, you know, box office bonuses and such. And I think it'll be sure for writers as well. You know, okay, we have to build in both options. If this is theatrical, then X. If this is HBO Max or streaming, then Y, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that is a new thing that's coming in deal dealmaking um, where they don't know up front where it's going to end up. And so you have to work the back ends to that degree, you know? Right. I'm curious, though, about, like, when you're selling, if a movie's going streaming... Is that kind of, as opposed to theatrical where it's, you know, you're going to, who knows how big it's going to be and it could blow up and be huge and make a ton of money. But when you go to somewhere like Netflix or Amazon or something like that, if that's, that's it, is that kind of, you're just that's locked it. into, that's what you're getting. That's what we you know getting. that it's, yeah. Jason Blum actually gave a good interview about this. He was like, yeah, when I make things for streaming, I try to get the budgets as big as possible because that's all the money you're going to get. You know, right. and this is a man who's made a lot of money from theatrical, obviously. He's like, look, if it's theatrical, I try, I try to get the budget as low as possible so I can make as much money as possible if it, you know, really hits in a big way. But for streaming, I try to blow the butt. It's funny because he's known for being like the cheap, you know, the guy who makes money cheaply, but not for streaming. Because in streaming, he's like, what's the point? Do you know what I'm saying? I want to get everyone paid as much as possible, mostly himself. <laughs> um, obviously, that's what looking out for. I mean, like that's just normal. That's just like that's what I slam on Jason. It's no, just, no, no. It's that's how anybody would be. They're like, wait, why am I taking the same producing fee I would if I'm going to get big back end on theatrical for streaming? Like the the sad reality on streaming is, to my understanding, no matter how big your movie does, it doesn't affect your bottom line. You know, like I produced a movie for Netflix called Eli, and people are like, oh man, I'm going to watch your movie, and I'm like cool. Like it doesn't, I'm glad that you, if you enjoy it, I'm very happy, but it's not like your stream adds any money, more money into my pocket. You know um, it's, you know, what you get is what you get. And that is, that is that. And that is a very hard thing for the industry and for writers where residuals are such a huge part of how you make a living, you know, especially for TV. So, you know, I think the reality is residuals, um, you know, there's not, you know, if we're all heading towards, I think theatrical will always be around, but you know, that is for, if you have a streaming play, like that's that, what you got is what you got. I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Um, just because, you know, the Writers Guild just signed a, a new contract, which was pretty disappointing for a lot of the rank and file because we didn't address residuals. I think that is the current state of play, but I like to imagine a world where if the unions can get 
the streamers to release metrics and then make demands on those metrics. A residual system is possible. Uh, we're just simply allowing these companies not to pay them. I mean, and, it's predicated uh, upon the idea that Netflix would ever release metrics, which they've never done to anyone ever. So, yeah, you're not wrong that it could happen. But historically, Netflix and those companies have never, ever, 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 ever released metrics in a series. Oh, totally. Yeah, my, my view is the union should use that as the prime uh, issue in the next contract. But unfortunately, you know, we've gotten bogged down in things like healthcare and whatnot. And I do acknowledge that uh, Silicon Valley is predicated on uh, being mysterious and nebulous with all of their numbers. Uh, but I think that you know, uh, writing should pay and directing should pay what it used to pay. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I don't, be... I don't, no one's here is disagreeing with that. I think as a practical reality, I think that's a long shot because I think you'd have to get into it in about four years and, or probably more like, I mean, I, in my, historically when they're, you know, when things have gone, I, I don't know that you'd be threatening a strike in another four years. Obviously it's possible. You know what I'm saying? To me, it's probably more like eight years, but the problem is eight years from now, is it, is it, baked in is it so far gone that it's baked in you know and like I, I, yeah. me, if you're going to strike the time would have been now but then COVID hit and that was kind of that and you didn't really have the leverage so I'm not I completely agree that it should be different I'm not I mean because that affects my bottom line affects my client's bottom line do I realistically think that's going to happen I personally don't think that's realistic I think it's a goal to aim for but I think to sit here and be like that will change in a is unlikely personally coming from a from a scenario having negotiated with them and stuff like that i don't disagree with that i mean i was uh, i'm a show captain in the guild and my view was we should have hit the line anyway despite the covid but obviously uh that was not the appetite of the writers guild so uh clearly your view is the predominant one at the moment and going back to kevin's initial question about wonder woman going to streaming and the decisions behind that and the repercussions of it I think Warner sees it maybe as like a forced opportunity. They made the film obviously for a theatrical, but then they launched HBO Max. And um, with Netflix doing huge movies with big movie stars and big filmmakers and Apple getting in the game, Netflix, um, Warners and Disney have to compete with that. They have, there's a standard that's been set up. So they were inevitably gonna have to start to push some of their bigger titles to that platform, but maybe starting off with like spin-offs in the DC universe and the Marvel universe, not their main movies. But with Wonder Woman going there, I think they see it as an opportunity to try to trigger more awareness to the, to, to the platform. And these are publicly traded companies that have to continue to service their bottom line in any way they can. They can't just keep content sitting on their shelf for 18 months as days gets pushed and and um, these movies can't draw any kind of return. And Wonder Woman is getting a simultaneous theatrical release, which provided enough theaters are open. I think they're going to try to see it as a way of like a day and date. And whether it sets a dangerous precedent or not for big movies in the future and the, the disintegration of theatrical remains to be seen. But I'm a optimist in the sense that when the world normalizes more, we are going to want to get out of our homes and there's plenty of branded content and that they, that they're going to be able to make and put back out there. And I think things will get back to a normal state with the bigger titles, but I think streaming will be even more popular as a result of the pandemic. The question I get a lot from buyers is why is this theatrical? You know, why? 
you know? One of the questions you always get about movies is why now? Like, why should this movie be made now? Um, and I think with now the question is, why is this a theatrical movie, you know? And you have to justify the very fact of people going, that people would go to the theater for it. Um, you know, and sometimes that irritates me because I'm like, you could ask that question about a million of books. Because it kind of, what it tends to mean is like, if it's not big budget, what's the point, you know, theatrically? And for me, there's a million movies like Get Out or, you know, The Purge or like, you know, other like Lady Bird that actually did really like Lady Bird be like what's the point of making that theatrical but it did actually really quite well you know um and so I think there's a now there's become this idea that if it's under a certain budget range it's just automatically a streaming movie and that that's a real disappointment I think and my hope is that 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 thinking doesn't get um doesn't become so fixated in the uh, minds of executives but I mean I do think that like there will be people who will put out movies like Get Out or, you know, things like that, or are there more, or like movies like Lady Bird or whatever, independent movies, and they, they will do well, because there always is an appetite for that kind of stuff, you know, um, and that will, like, people be wake, will kind of wake up a little bit, but I do think there will be, a, there's just a lot of feeling out there that unless it's a big budget movie, and this is obviously theatrical, I mean, films we're talking about here, um, what's the point in, what's the point in, in releasing it theatrically? And that's, that's a hurdle you have to overcome when you're trying to sell a project. Yeah, and I think as representatives, it's important to take a look at where the trends are and where the opportunities are. And if something's being generated, that an expectation might've been theatrical, but it makes more sense on streaming, then it's an opportunity to have clients that might never have got their movies made as quickly to get their credits out there. Um, Like there's some people work for many, many, many years in development and never see their movies get made as a result of the theatrical landscape shrinking and becoming more competitive where on streaming, at least you can get the credit up there. It might not make the waves that a theatrical release could have made because it's not going to have the same type of, sheen on it it's going to get dumped maybe if it's not a big title but you know to be able to say you got produced credits i think is still a big coup for 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 writers these days and for filmmakers so i think it's it's just as much of an opportunity as it is a a disappointment that we've that we've lost some of our theatrical um bandwidth Mm -hmm. but as a guy who grew up with theatrical films and loved them, that's an experience I certainly never want to see go away. And I hope we can level the playing field a little bit more. So as we go along with less big budget movies and get back to the mid range or lower budget films, finding theatrical fanfare. That sort of leads me to a follow-up question in terms of, I think we all agree that movie theaters have their place and we all want cinema to survive, obviously not just switch over and most likely will, but what sort of consolidation do you think there's going to be? Is there going to just be a lot fewer movie theaters? Because, you know, there's rumors of AMC going bankrupt or being bought out and this and that. And um, will there just be a lot fewer movie theaters, you think, going forward? Or will just a consol- consolidation occur? For example, like probably Cinemark. Initially. Finding, it could you know? be initially. You yeah. know? I mean, for me, it's like restaurants as well. Like, there's going to be a lot fewer restaurants a year from now. But I do think that the, it doesn't mean the appetite for restaurants has gone away. Sure. And I think there will be a, you know, a point where people will start getting back and opening more and more restaurants. And I mean, I think there will be less theaters. But if the demand and the theaters is high, then they'll go and they'll expand some more. 
but I, I do think we are initially for the next year or two, maybe longer, five years, in for a reduced theatrical landscape from, say, a year ago or something. That just seems obvious to me because we're asking theaters to work either limited with limited, you know, content or with or not even be open for, gosh, you know, who knows how long, you know. So I think that's, I, I, I don't really see any way otherwise. I think the theaters right now, given the size of them, are set up to more properly acclimate to a, a COVID world for another year because they're set up mostly to hold hundreds and hundreds of people in them. So I personally think that if you reduce your staff and create social distancing seating arrangements, you could put in a capacity at 30, 40, 50% or whatever it is, the safe distance, wearing your mask, watching a film that could facilitate a new normal for theatrical films once maybe there's a vaccine and people feel more safe for therapeutics. But the fact that they're already designed to hold a lot of people, I think they could just scale it down, cut back on their staff and fight to find some way to retain, retain some sort of profitability or baseline so that they can remain open until the world starts to normalize. Cause I think it's really dangerous to Scott. I think, think the what's big that? issue is people, the big issue isn't really, are they suited to like do that? The big issue is people actually showing up, you know? Yeah. But I people think if we, as feeling comfortable, you know, right now we're in a second wave. So like, it, and, and we're in bigger areas like Los Angeles and New York where people are more on top of each other. But, you know, I think as we get more of a handle on things, we're not suddenly going to go back to packing a theater. It's going to be a scale up very methodically. And at some point, the next step in theaters is going to be in bigger metropolitan areas is reopening them with these types of with with these types of parameters put in place to slowly encourage people to go back. And then they'll become comfortable with that. And then they'll start to scale up and scale up and scale up. And maybe by the year 2022, we're back to sitting next to someone in a movie theater. But it's not going to be no one goes to the movie theater and then one day everybody goes back and sits next to each other. It's going to be a progression. Well, do you think they can financially survive? That's the, I think the real, the root question. Well, I don't know the bottom line of what it costs with the overhead to keep a theater up and running, but given that they take half of the revenue of a, of a theater and you know, there is a way in which you can create concession opportunities still, even in a pandemic, it's going to, just going to be limited. Um, you know, I'd like to think that they could crunch their numbers in a way to say that we could probably at least, stay a little bit in the black or they're, they're, they're bleeding money right now because they're paying their leases and not making any money. To me, it makes more financial sense to scale up very slowly with a skeletal crew and figure it out than it is to stay closed and go bankrupt. Like, I think there's got to be a more of a middle ground than that. Theaters are not opening, not because they don't want to. It's because there's literally, it's illegal to open up theaters in certain areas. They all want to open right now literally all that want to open so they feel they can the states are saying you can't so there's got to be a way to sort that out otherwise i think it does become dangerous for the future of theaters I, this is obviously not the same thing but i'm a member of the magic castle in hollywood and our you know we would love to be open right now and obviously we can't but we are our board has looked at the numbers and we have to, if we open at 50% capacity, we barely break even because of all the additional expenses of, you know, insurance and added staff and all that. So I wonder how much that plays into 
you know, theaters operating as well and what your break even point I mean, is. My understanding is even in the best of times, we made all your money from concessions, mm-hmm. right? Like that was my impression. Yeah. So it doesn't, to me, if you're operating at 30 to 40% of what you used to do, are you, how, I don't know, you're, I mean, I even look at a lot of restaurants because I think, it, it, which I think at least with restaurants, you take out and outdoor dining. And I'm just like, man, how are they making money? You know, and let alone theaters where the margins are so slim, you're making your money because you're charging someone, I don't know, five bucks for a Coca-Cola that costs you like five cents to make from right. like formula and whatever, you know, and or popcorn or whatever, you know, and the question is how many people are going and getting their consent. It's, that's kind of where it all comes from, you know. Um, here's another thought. I, I think we've all seen the, the dine in theaters where instead of having 100, 200, 300 seats in an auditorium, you have 30, 40, 50, 60 seats, but there are these plush recliners and you have dine in service where you have waiters, you have an open, you're not open bar, but you have a bar that you can drink alcohol. And for that, obviously their profit margins are much larger. Um, so they all I went mean, out of business, though, Kevin. <laughs> well, in a non-pandemic situation, they actually most of them went out of business pre-pandemic. Oh, did they? Yeah. Oh, okay. So I guess they didn't work. <laughs> no, um, they didn't work. But the limited you, seating was so um, it was so limited that you right. didn't really make enough money from people. Like there was one in Westwood that I think is not there anymore. Is uh, the iPick? The iPick? Yep, iPick. Yeah. yeah, But I mean, I know AMC has them and a few of the theater chains have them. And I'd spoken to a, a general manager and he, he had he had mentioned that, that they make more money from alcohol sales than they do from tickets. But wouldn't sales. you not be able to have your mask on then if you're eating? No, no, no. Absolutely. Right now. Absolutely. But I think the thing is, I'm just wondering if the if if that makes sort of a return, i.e. because you can only have a few people in a the theater and they need to separate it and this and that in the future, if that makes a difference it, it, in terms of what on if the movies are there for people to show up for right and the right. real issue we're running into is this the content issue is this is studios don't want to release movies when 30 percent, only 30 percent of the market or maybe less is showing up for them sure. and they're like screw that i'm just going to hold on to my movie and either release it via my streaming platform to try and like get a bump long term for that or i'm going to wait until we're closer to 60 to 70 percent of my audience is going to be going back to it so that the problem is, until you have those movies, the, people aren't showing up. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. You know, I like I like Freaky. I want to see Freaky, but I don't know that that's the movie that's going to like get people coming back to theaters. Right. My Just thought was bigger. My thought was though, after in a post-pandemic world, going back to theaters, if theater chain, because I, I believe theater chains are probably weighing back and forth. The because I be, believe that theaters make only about 10% of ticket sales for the first week of a film. And then it, it slowly goes down from there. It's negotiated with each package. Sure. And, and the bigger That's films, right. the less they make early on and the more you make yeah. later on and by, you know, obviously, you know, uh, mid budget films and things like that. That's they why make- they love long running movies. Cause like the movies that are like, week 12 like the big fat, right. my big fat greek weddings of the world that's when they're like at like eight, making 80 percent right movie. right but something like if a lot of their theaters are converted to these dine-in theaters where you have a lot fewer bodies but they're making more money in concessions but the, the studios aren't making as much money you know they're getting 90 percent of ticket sales on opening night but there's 60 seats versus a 450 seat auditorium does that move uh, studios more to just releasing it 
in their own on their own streaming platform. I mean, it's all predicated on when the theaters want to sure. studios want to release the movies. That's yeah. that's that's the driver, not the studio, not the theaters figuring out personally diamond options or whatever. It's when studios are like, I want to release my I'm gonna release I don't know, my big, my big franchise, my Fast and Furious movie, you know, right. that's when people are going to show up. They show up for the movies. They don't show up to like eat and drink, really. <laughs> um, you didn't get to answer, John, what your favorite Thanksgiving movie is. So we're going to put you I'm on Canadian, spot. like Scott, uh, <laughs> and we didn't really grow up with Thanksgiving movies, so... Well, I mean, but you can still enjoy them, right? I Honestly, I can't even yeah. think of any Thanksgiving movies. I can think of Christmas movies, but I can't think of any... What are some Thanksgiving movies? A lot of us were in the uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles camp. I had forgotten uh, that was a Thanksgiving movie. Ian, um, what did you say again, Ian? Uh, I was saying... Um, uh, the uh, Thanksgiving trailer from Grindhouse oh, right. and uh, Adam's Family Values, uh, Home for the Holidays is a Thanksgiving movie. But, I was uh, like, I was like, it's it's a, it's a mini genre. It's not a very expanded genre. Yeah, <laughs> I honestly never really under as a Canadian. I know Scott. I don't know if you felt this way, but when I moved to the states, number one, my birthdays right on Thanksgiving are close to it, so like that was always awkward. Um, then I've always been like, wait, people go home in November for Thanksgiving and then they home come for the, like the winter, winter holidays, like a month later, never, I was like, what, this doesn't make, in Canada, Thanksgiving's in October. And I'm like, well, and we don't, it's not really as, as big a deal as it is here. Although it gets a little bit bigger every year, I think I was like, well, at least October, that's like a two months difference or something, you know, <laughs> they don't really release, you know, it's funny. I was talking to a friend. Um, who did a th- a Christmas movie, who produced a Christmas movie, and he made the point, the tricky thing with Christmas movies is you can't release them till December, and then the moment New Year's Eve hits, they become like, point. people are like, well, nobody's like in January 15, let's go see that Christmas movie, you know? So it's like there's a really limited window for when you can release your Christmas movie. Um, and although he did say that like, the, hopefully there's a long tail effect um, where like it becomes a perennial the way that Elf did. Um, but it's funny. I have to imagine with Thanksgiving, your window is even tighter for when you can release it. Cause you have to wait until after Halloween. Cause that's when all the Halloween movies are and scary movies kind of play year round. And then you have to wait, but it can't be after Thanksgiving cause then it's Christmas, you know, that's a very narrow window, which may account for how many, how few Thanksgiving movies there are. Plus Thanksgiving. And that's often why those holiday films yeah. have to be thematically even more universal. So that when you're beyond just the Christmas element, it does feel like the type of thing that you can emotionally relate to it just because it's speaking to life in general. Yeah. And also Thanksgiving is an American holiday, so it doesn't exactly play worldwide. And it's interesting. My son is, he's seven, but he's really interested in those Halloween animatronics, which I don't know if you've seen those. Oh, uh, you mean like Halloween, um... those little movable robotic, uh, pumpkin monsters and 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 skeletons and things like that and inflatable ones uh that you see in the the pop-up stores the halloween cities and the spirit halloweens that move into sort of uh, out of business locations and things like that um anyway they sell them at home depot as well and i we went to home depot a week before halloween and they had already gotten rid of everything halloween and had moved christmas stuff in so that was Quite interesting. It speaks to the lack of Thanksgiving movies, I suspect. Right, exactly, <laughs> which is which is part of it. Well, uh, what's, what's wild is there's an entire like subgenre of holiday movie where they they recognize that like around Thanksgiving, around Christmas, uh, 
families are getting together and uh, half the time that that happens, you've got people often in the younger generation who are like, this is lame as hell and I don't want to be here. So that there are actually movies geared towards younger people that want to escape their families. Like that's why they always release right. like, s- some kind of like genre fl- flick around Christmas, like a horror movie around Christmas or a horror movie around Thanksgiving. Uh, it's, it's the, it's sort of the escape from wholesomeness that like, you know, people like me would want. That's why bad Santa was so great because it, it, it was both worlds together. Exactly. Yeah. Did bad Santa even do well theatrically? I can't remember. I know it's obviously a hit. I can't remember if it was like a a game, it was a DVD or, you know, a big success or it was a hit at the time. It's been a success with me, so. <laughs> and that's all that matters, really. I'm always yeah. curious about the movies that are pers- are not particularly theatrically. Like, Austin Powers was not a big theatrical success, but it became, obviously, a, a big success later on. It's always interesting. Did the, did the subsequent films do a yeah. lot better because of the first one? Yeah. It was like the blockbuster effect, which is now what, like, what you see with like Breaking Bad or, or things like that, where it's like you see it more in cable shows, but like where something is popular in another medium and therefore I mean it's a wonderful life is not a success right and it became a success over uh and Wizard of Oz I think like was not what lost money but like TV resurrected those movies and when they're when they started playing on TV and getting success they would re-release them theatrically again every Christmas season or whenever for Wizard of Oz um and then they would actually make more money that way because oh, yeah. back in the day, obviously, the only way you could see movies was on television because there was no video cassettes or anything like that. So it's interesting when something is a failure at first and then becomes a success. It's now a perceived success. Like Blade Runner. I always loved that they made a sequel to Blade Runner because I was like, it was a flop the first time. Um, and then unfortunately, it didn't do the second time. But maybe the so, third time. Maybe even just yeah, give it one more the shot. Third time. You know, Blade Runner 2070. <laughs> By so the way, we, uh, sorry, guys. No, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, It's a Wonderful Life was such a bomb when it first came out that they let its copyright lapse, and oh. it uh, it became available to to essentially show for free on television. <laughs> um, and because it was just being used as as an airway filler, uh, people you know who weren't particularly <laughs> discerning about what was on TV started watching it, and that's uh. It was just that's what made it so ubiquitous that people realized, oh wait a minute, this is like, wow, this is this is actually a really powerful movie, and it became a cultural institution because of how neglected it was at the beginning. I love that. Bad Santa did seventy six million at the box office on a twenty three million dollar budget for whatever that's. Uh, Bad Santa. Oh, so it's profitable, yeah. yeah. Um, we have to welcome a new guest, Yelena War. Um, hello. She is the creator of the WGA Mix Discord server. If you haven't checked that one out, you should. Oh, hey, Yelena. Welcome. Hey, how's it going? Hey, is my, is my audio okay for a podcast on the yes. AirPods? Because I can get my real mic if you need me to. No, you sound good. And you're near a gigantic tree of some sort. I am. I thought this would be more festive than this. Yes, it house. is. This it is, is my balcony. It is massive. Yes, this tree is probably going to crush me in my sleep someday. <laughs> One day it it'll get really you. Uh, yeah, because my bedroom is like right over there. So if the wind blows just the right way, it'll just be like, <laughs> and then that'll be, that will be the end of me. 
And we'll do a little roll call for you since you are coming in fresh. Um, we've got Andrew Zuber, who is a magician. Oh, and also writes for uh, Stitchers from uh, Freeform and Nickelodeon's Rainbow Butterfly Unicorn Kitty. I have to remember the order of that. Um, Brendan Gallagher. Hey, Brendan. He is writer on Warrior Nun. Uh, we've got, obviously, our two prolific lit reps, Scott Carr and John Zalzirny uh, of Bellevue. Um, I've always wondered how to pronounce that, so thank you. How do you pronounce it, Scott? Uh, Kevin? John Zalzirny. That's right. You've said it enough times. Yeah, that's the yeah, yeah. pronunciation. Um, Ian Shore, who's screenwriter of Infinite 1031, Training Day. Um, he's got some great stories. And for all, anyone listening or watching, uh, all of these guys have podcast episodes you can check them out at scriptsandscribes.com we have full interviews and we've got our uh wonderful uh discord mod staff vy bars who's uh from bulgaria but in north of london i don't know what city that is uh vy hi um Catherine burgess in alexandria virginia still in virginia yep yep um and we've got remy chevalier am i pronouncing that right remy perfect that's a great name. Is that your real last name, Chevalier? That's amazing. Yeah, it means uh, knight. With yeah, that's why yeah, it's horseman. amazing. Yeah, horseman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Chevalier. Yeah. Uh, Chevalier. And he is in the French Alps. Um, yep. So he and Ian are fighting for the best place to be quarantined right now. The French Alps are Kauai. Yeah, but Ian's winning, I think. <laughs> Ian, Ian may be winning. <laughs> um, that's pretty amazing. Because that's not sexy at all. <laughs> this, is, this would be a much more direct competition if we could actually see outside and if it were daytime there. Yeah, we could, oh, but yeah. it's night. It's 8 p.m., so... Oh, okay. Yeah, you uh, beat me to it. <laughs> uh, and, Yelena, we actually asked everybody their favorite Thanksgiving film. Oh my so, God. Do I that? have a favorite Thanksgiving film? I don't know if I have. I think my favorite Thanksgiving film is, oh, do I do? Oh, what is, what was that wonderful? I think I'm going to have to, I think I'm going to have to say that my favorite Thanksgiving film is the Thanksgiving episode of Master of None. It's not a film. But. Oh, that's so a good. great yeah. one. Okay. Yeah, a great yeah. one. Yeah. Good answer. Kevin, you, you intended this as a fun question, but I feel like it becomes like a riddle. <laughs> <laughs> it should just be name a Thanksgiving film. Yeah, and you're like, uh, uh. shit. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting how we're sort of insulated here in the States, um, and Christmas seems to be more universal, but like Thanksgiving, until you speak to two Canadians, a Bulgarian and a Frenchman, <laughs> you don't realize that, oh yeah, they don't celebrate Thanksgiving everywhere. You just don't think about it until you well, start Well, Canada has Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, but it's just right, it's in October, do, right? It's not, right. It's not a, it's not a right. real, it's like, I think we're imitating you guys. Like, <laughs> in Canada a lot is that people are like, well, the States does it. Like, it's the same way that like England does Halloween now. Um, and they never did previously, but they saw it in so many like American movies that they started it up and now it's actually quite popular. But even like 10 years ago, it was not particularly popular. So I don't know the origins of Canada's Thanksgiving, but I feel like it has to do with like us being like, well, the Americans are doing it. We should do it as well. But you know, there's no origin story to Canada's Thanksgiving to my knowledge. It's not like, like you're kind of like, I don't know, BS, you know, BS, whatever story, the pilgrims or whatever. Um, uh, I don't know how real that is. It seems to be controversial. But um, 
but yeah, we don't have any origins here in Canada. It's just kind of like what the Americans are doing. We should do it, but like a month earlier. And I don't think you get the day off or anything. It's not a haul. I don't think it's an official holiday. I don't remember getting it off. Do you do turkey? Do you eat turkey? We do. Yeah. But it's not like, it's like your family doesn't come home for it or anything. It's just like, hey. You just like get a turkey sandwich at the deli that day. I mean, unless you're in Montreal, there's not really many delis in Canada. It's not like a deli country. You don't have delis in Canada? I mean, Montreal. Montreal has big delis, but Vancouver and Calgary, which is where I primarily am from, not so much. Where do you get a sandwich? Well, I mean, it's kind of like going to Montana. Do you think Montana has delis? No. I lived in Montana. Probably, There's no delis. Probably not run by real <laughs> Jews, but <laughs> Vancouver does Possibly not have delis. Some inauthentic Vancouver delis. does not have delis, and Calgary does not have delis. Montreal has amazing delis. Um, Toronto probably does, but Western Canada not so much. Okay, well, that is a reason for me not to move to Western Canada. <laughs> I mean, you can have fun in Montreal and Toronto with those winners, uh, but yeah. And I had actually asked everybody before we got, or when we got started, that uh, John and Yelena, you haven't answered yet, is what are, since we're all in quarantine, what are some of the things you've learned or something you have learned during quarantine or something you wish you would learn? Like, if it didn't get around to. You go, you go first. I got to think of my answer. Um, I, I just learned a lot about the whole little tiny world that exists in my little teeny tiny backyard. This is a very small little backyard that you can't really see because the giant tree is blocking it. But I've spent like all of my time in quarantine raising caterpillars in my tiny backyard (laughs) and also cataloging all of the species of spiders and bugs and like just little critters. I befriended a hummingbird because my hair apparently looks like food. So now when I come out here to write, if I'm being like fairly quiet, he'll come over and sit on this little perch next to me that's over here that you can't really see. uh, And just like try to get up the courage to stick his beak in my hair and look for food. He so far has not stuck his beak in my hair, but he like once in a while flies around behind my head and really, really thinks about it. And then just goes back to his perch and is like, not today, maybe tomorrow. Um, I don't think it's the tree that's going to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you think the hummingbird is going to kill I, me i think it, i think eventually it's it's gonna you know build up its confidence enough that it just attacks it just stabs me i guess like <laughs> ooh, has anybody ever done that has anybody ever done like carotid artery pierced by a hummingbird beak as like a way to die in a movie that might be new we might have thought of a new one it's coming <laughs> there's a bunch of writers in here so you may have just given away your idea your multi ooh. your million dollar idea Ooh, that would be that would be brutal. I'm not even a gore movie person, but I kind of want to see that. (laughs) (laughs) So hopefully my hummingbird doesn't kill me. But no, that that's what I've learned is that like even when I'm stuck with this like little tiny like 100 square feet of outdoor space, there's actually kind of an entire world and like dozens of species of creatures that live there. So your caterpillar tweets have been great. I have done a lot of caterpillar tweets. There are still caterpillars. It's November. I don't know how there's still caterpillars. Didn't your your West Wing tweet go viral? Your tweet series, right? Yes, not my not my caterpillar tweets. My West yeah, Wing tweets are that uh, one went of... viral. And for those who haven't don't know what that is, uh, maybe you can relay us some of that. You know what what it was. 
but it was great. Yeah. So the night that it was announced that the president of the United States had COVID-19, mm-hmm. I had been binging a lot of West Wing for the first time, had never seen it before. I grew up without TV. I haven't seen anything. Like I'm still catching up on 25 years of TV that I didn't watch because I didn't know it existed or it was good. Uh, so I've been catching up on West Wing during quarantine. And I was just like, when when this news broke, it just felt like, oh my God, like they would all be so amused by this. They would all be so befuddled and baffled and amused by what this country has come to and they would want to say something. And I just, at first I thought I was just like doing one tweet. So I just did like one little tweet that was like Jed saying that he should make a statement about this. And then it turned into this big thread because I just kept hearing the characters in my head. And I was like, I'm just going to type this into Twitter. And the four people that know that I'm watching West Wing will think it's really funny that I've watched so much West Wing that I'm like one of them now and hearing the characters in my head now. And they'll be like, haha, we got you. And that will be what happens. And then I went to bed and I woke up and it had gone viral first on like West Wing fan Twitter and then made its way to comic book writer Twitter and then it made its way all the way around back to like screenwriting Twitter that I'm actually a part of (laughs) and like Krista Vernoff, Brian Koppelman tweeted about it. I started getting like people found my website and started emailing me. Uh, I got like I was reposted apparently into a uh, huge West Wing fan group on Facebook. So people from Facebook like started coming to Twitter and being like, I made a Twitter account to tell you how much I love this thread. And so apparently I accidentally wrote a spec and I started like (laughs) hearing from all of these people and I started meeting with reps and I ended up uh, meeting my reps at Artists First through that. And then uh, there was a lot for a show that was on 20 years ago and you got a rep from it. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) like this is the advice that nobody would ever like you should be fired if you give anybody that advice and that is what worked for me (laughs) but did they shoot it word for word yeah there was a live read with like Rhea Seahorn, Jason Ritter, Malcolm Barrett, like so many incredible people. And it's, you know, <laughs> Allison Thomas. Like, I still cannot believe this happened. It was the weirdest month of my life by far. And I have had some weird months online. I mean, I was famous on Reddit for a while when I was 20. So. Like, to be the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me online is quite the competition, and this is it. <laughs> so for any writers out there who don't have, aren't represented yet, find a 20-year-old TV show, go on yes. Twitter, write a spec, post it on well, Twitter. Well, then everyone will just say that you're ripping off Yelena. You're going to be like, oh, that's man, true. that already happened for you. Yeah, that's true. you got to find you somewhere else to post it. You can only do it, like, it. you have to wait, like, 10 years and do it, because the Seinfeld 9-11 spec guy did it. So sure. now somebody else, in, like, 10 years, somebody else has to do it with, like, a show that we probably think of as current now, but it'll be right. 20 years old. <laughs> I think the OC, the OC in 10 years will be. be That's the one? The OC OC characters reacting to something off. Whatever's going on. (laughs) Elon Musk establishing the Mars colony. Yeah. (laughs) The OC characters in the Mars colony. Welcome to Mars, bitch. Yeah. Oh, God. By the way, someone's going to query me that now that I've said that. Yeah, someone's going to say it's the the OC on Mars. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, somebody's going to send you the Someone's going to send that to me now. Yeah. I have manifested it awfully. So You you asked for this. And now you have to read it. Well, I'm sure it'll be, uh, guessing judging from the number of queries I get, it will not be the only 
it will not be one. It'll be many. <laughs> I'm halfway through the email right now, so I'm just about to hit send. <laughs> the last time I joked about a query, uh, like a crazy thing, someone decided to do it and then turn it into a meme, and it was yeah. I mean, Yelena has had a, that's her quarantine experience with Twitter. I mean, Caterpillars, and then obviously the West Wing Twitter thing. I mean, my I, my my quarantine big experience has actually been Twitter as well, um, which has been you know largely positive with um a negative week or two um so uh but yeah that was that was that's that was like my big discovery over quarantine was certainly getting more involved in twitter and learning um what i think works and sometimes what maybe doesn't work uh or at least what can provoke reactions from people that you don't intend um but yeah that's been that's been, I'm trying, I wish I had something as cool as story as Yelena's, um, but... Uh, Don't worry, been, none actually, of us I have. I, I do, I guess I signed four four clients off of, of it's been interesting, you know, I, I used to get, I always got query letters and or query emails, and, um, and you know, I don't think I've ever, I signed like one or two people off of them, but one was like a comic book guy, and another one, I, it never ended up being a long-term kind of representation scenario, because he just never could write another screenplay other than the one I, I repped him off of. But I found four different clients, five, since one's a writing team off of Twitter, sorry, off of query emails this year, um, which are- You just picked up like months. one of my favorite people on Twitter, right, Jay Lisa J? Uh, I don't rep her, no. No? Um, no, um, Nick and Amanda, um, who are active on Twitter, um and then i mean it was interesting i think it's hard to quantify because i think my increased visibility on twitter led to increased query letters which maybe led to increased quality of query letters um but i know that one of the people who queried me is not very active on twitter to my knowledge um she just saw that i was very popular and she's like i'm going to reach out to you and end up signing her she had this amazing script called a headhunter um and that ended up you know a lot of agencies wanted to sign her and Ian's read it. It's really, really good. And, you know, she's really talented. And Nick and Amanda reached out to me via Twitter and they're really talented. Um, I have a writer director who reached out to me via query and he's amazing. And um, someone else who follows me um, and looks like we we're going to option his script to a financier now. So it's, that's actually been a really interesting discovery has been, you know, finding people and making relationships, whether they're my clients or otherwise via Twitter, that's been really cool for me. I wanted to throw in another Thanksgiving-esque question. Um, favorite Thanksgiving food, and for those of you guys who are not American, uh, just favorite food in general, I suppose. Well, I'll start with Andrew. Favorite Thanksgiving it's, food? I just love mashed potatoes. I don't know. I know that's pretty plain. I'll put gravy on them, I guess, but I've, it's hard to go wrong with that for me. But since you're a magician, you can make make it appear out of nowhere right there you go yeah and then i can turn them into cash and then i don't need yeah uh brendan uh i'm gonna go also with a pretty popular and easy answer stuffing for me okay vy well i'm going to put it a body can just say chicken 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 what kind of chicken grilled roasted no grilled is best yeah uh cat um it's changed over the years. I used to love, uh, we had like sweet potatoes with marshmallows on top and like you put them in the oven and the marshmallows were roasted, but I don't Classic. like marshmallows anymore. So I will have to go with stuffing. Okay. Ian? 
Um, I, uh, the, the tradition at, at my house is I'm, I'm usually the one making the turkey and uh, I have this, this big smoking operation in my backyard. So like a, a good smoked turkey is totally my jam. And what do you smoke it with? Like what kind of, doesn't each wood provide a different taste? Oh yeah, yeah, uh, and and like there are there are woods that work for red meat versus wood woods that work for uh, for turkey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to smoke mine in uh, in cherry wood or apple wood. Oh, because uh, it gives it like a like a not overpowering smoke flavor. The cherry wood gives it a little bit of red coloring, um, and if you if you do it right, like if you, if you prep it right, it just comes out beautifully. It comes out like nice and moist. The skin is all crispy, like. Uh, Turkey is like one of those things that's really hard to do well. Like, there's a reason you don't see it on restaurant menus, um, and you know, just generally because it's a big, tough, gamey bird that doesn't want to be cooked. Right. Uh, so, uh, when you actually get one of those things to come out right, it's it's a deeply satisfying experience. Like, you feel like you conquered something. Mm-hmm. Uh, John. Um. I mean, you know turkey which is always great but i guess right. i particularly like it with uh cranberry sauce Cran- i okay. love cranberry sauce and for me it's actually like sometimes the day after turkey sorry the day after thanksgiving when you have all your turkey leftovers and i can put it into a, sand- a sandwich with you know tur- the, the cold turkey and then the ladle the cranberry sauce on top of it and then make mm-hmm. a sandwich i love that yelena I also love the day after a turkey sandwich, but I think I am a chronic Thanksgiving orphan because I don't tend to go home for the holidays and I live alone. So I go to a lot of different people's Thanksgivings. So it depends on whose Thanksgiving I'm at because some (laughs) people have specialties. Like if one is fortunate enough to be invited to a black family Thanksgiving, absolutely the macaroni and cheese. White people just don't know how to make macaroni and cheese. I don't know how. I can't do it. I can't do it. Uh, but if it were my mom's Thanksgiving, it's the tail of the turkey. I like breaking the tail off the turkey and eating the tail of it. I, I don't know what that is. What? Please explain more about it's the, the nubbin. The little... It's just like basically like a chunk of fat covered in skin. Oh. And I'm one of those people who can taste fat. Like, can everybody taste fat? Like, they say one in six people have taste receptors for fat, but I feel like everybody can. Oh, totally. It's like, yeah. a, it's like a burnt it's got end. a ton of flavor. Yeah. Mm. Like, when I was a child, I would just eat lumps of butter. Like, not even the salted butter. Like, just the unsalted baking <laughs> butter. <laughs> I love fat. So, turkey tail is just basically a lump of fat with crispy skin on it and like some seasoning on it and it's um it, it sounds like pork belly but turkey basically and i'm jewish so i don't eat pork belly so that is right. that is my this, pork the, belly so this this is yeah this, this will this will get you there um remy i favorite think i food? missed the question oh favorite uh, food for... Ooh, uh oh it's a tough one i think i would go with duck duck excellent yeah. um actually we have duck for thanksgiving not because we're i'm coming know, opposed to turkey but uh one year we had a massive turkey and it was just a small group of us and we had turkey for weeks we had to freeze most of it and then just <laughs> turkey soup and turkey sandwiches and now we just cannot have turkey uh so we have duck oh, turkey overdose yeah um uh scott favorite Favorite Thanksgiving food? Um, 
I'd have to say we'd have a giant baked ham. Oh, okay. Um, which I think in Canada is, is, is synonymous with turkey. Sometimes they just interchange them or have both. And we smear everything in beef gravy, which is just delectable over mashed potatoes or turkey or stuffing. And for dessert, I'm fond of maple syrup pie. Oh, yeah, that sounds good. Is, yeah, it's like 500 calories of sugar per bite, but it's worth it. <laughs> oh, my God. And we have a new visitor, uh, Mr. Eric Rogers, my friend. Uh, writer, producer, showrunner, Skylanders Academy, Brickleberry, and one of my personal favorites, Futurama. Welcome, Eric. Hello. Um, I love the obey behind you. Where's it at? Yeah, there right we go. There. Yeah. There um, we go. So we were asking everyone their favorite <clears throat> Thanksgiving food or favorite food in general. Yep. What do you got? Um, well, I mean, I don't want to say the boring, you know, tried and true answers but you know the reason the reason cliches are cliches is just because uh everyone likes the same stuff so you know uh the usual you know i come from ohio so there, there's there's a lot of meat and potatoes in uh in that part of the uh country so uh it's very standard stuff but i also am married to a vegetarian who is an amazing cook so we have uh we have changed it up over the years and she makes a lot of amazing stuff uh, from scratch uh, that, and uh, I get my Turkey and then she does all the awesome vegetarian side. And it usually turns out to be pretty, uh, a pretty, pretty great uh, combination of food. So, yeah. And we had asked everybody earlier, uh, what is something you learned during quarantine or something you wanted to learn, but maybe didn't have time to uh, during quarantine since we're all sort of, trapped at home mostly um i well let's see i have learned that i uh would be a terrible teacher uh <laughs> <upset>. <laughs> i have a uh seven seven year old son, well eight year old son now but uh, when this all began he was seven and uh uh we uh our sons go to the same cars. school yes that's right absolutely and they're yeah. and they're buddies they're uh, buddies they're knuckleheads together um <laughs> but uh you know, I, my appreciation for what teachers do and how they wrangle these kids uh, on a daily basis and, and and get them to progress is it, my my appreciation is off the charts. Um, I always appreciated teachers, you know, but this pandemic has taught me that just that job is mm -hmm. so so important, so invaluable, and they should be paid so much more money and taken care of so much more than than they are. Um, but uh, personally, I would be a terrible one. I've learned that. Um, and I also learned to make a fantastic old fashioned during this uh, hey. quarantine. So that's my, that's my go-to uh, end of the day sort of reward myself drink now. So uh, yeah, those, are, those, those, those two things. I see a connection between the first thing and the second thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, not a, not a big jump there, right? <laughs> And you nice see some of the faces uh, I see on Twitter now here live, live and oh, right. uh, speaking. This is awesome. Ian and uh, there was a, I didn't mean to go to the figure view, but there was a couple other people. Uh, yeah, we've got Andrew Zuber up there in the, well, yeah. in, my, in mine, he's in the corner. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, in this screen, there we go. A yeah, Andrew, yeah. uh, you know, wrote for Nick's Rainbow Butterfly Unicorn Kitty uh, and Stitchers. Right on. 
Um, he's also a magician, which he's going to do a magic trick for us at some point very soon. Uh, uh, Brendan Gallagher. No pressure, Kevin. No pressure there. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. how I get most of my jobs. That's like having like, so, so-and-so is a comedy writer. He's going to tell a funny joke. He's funny. I volunteered him, funny, but he, right? I warned him in advance that I would volunteer him. He did and tell me. Any... Horrif- You've got to either thrill us or horrify us. <laughs> Maybe he'll just disappear from the Zoom call. Like, that would be great. <laughs> Bye. Okay. gone. Hey. <laughs> 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 there you go. <laughs> Um, Brendan Gallagher from Warrior Nun and a bunch of other things. Um, we have Ian Shore, who is yeah. at in Kauai for some amazing oh. reason. Just showing because off. he can. Okay. Because he can. Yeah, because he can. There you go. Um, and we've got uh, John Zazerny and Scott Carr, our uh, resident lit managers extraordinaire. Uh, yeah, I, I speak with John a, quite, a little bit back and forth on the on the Twitters and follow his uh, amazing uh, threads. So nice to meet well you, done, sir. In person. You too, man. Well, like, not too. in person, but like you know, close close as we yeah. can get right now. I clo- exactly. exactly. Yeah. No, John and Scott are both amazing. Um, awesome. Scott, I think, is more of a Facebook guy, but he has also great stuff on Facebook. He posts a lot. Uh, John is more of a Twitter guy and posts amazing stuff on Twitter. So um, whatever your platform is. The new Facebook redesign is just too hard. It is <laughs> unfun. I hate it. It won't load on my computer anymore. Like it takes forever to just load my notifications. It makes me feel like a boomer. I always love when they, when they like Silicon Valley, why fix, you know, why, you know, it's like always, I, I can't think of the right line. The writers can think of a line. Like, it's like, you know, with that line, don't fix what ain't broke. It's like they're really yeah. intent on breaking what isn't broken <laughs> right you know? and they're like no this is better for you you really are gonna like this i was just gonna say my hometown went 80 percent for trump both times so i left facebook in 2016 uh but i think i want to venture back in now for some schadenfreude and i did that last night uh while <laughs> like drinking some old-fashioned there's a I'm secret plan it. which is detailed in this youtube video that's how secret <laughs> it is very I'm, uh, only, I'm only from, true believers see it i'm from pennsylvania and our lieutenant or their lieutenant governor john fetterman who's this huge big bald dude with a goatee has awesome. been yeah. Oh, yeah. on the news and uh i went to school in pittsburgh so i've known about him for a long long time and it's amazing to see him just owning republicans on cnn every night so <laughs> i i've been i've been drinking deep uh conservative <laughs> tears here the last week or so by the way brendan i, w- I want to ask are you uh you're, you're like are you in los files or silver lake where, where are you at uh, i'm in hollywood uh very central hollywood kind of near hollywood and western yeah, so you, you you were talking about uh, going up into Griffith Park, so I'm like, okay, like I'm I'm around that area as well. I love it, man. I you know I can jog right in the morning there, and you feel like you're you know in the wilderness or something after about ten minutes. So that's my morning. You were talking about workouts earlier, Scott. Mine has been alternating that with uh, my buddy has a garage that opens, and he's converted it into kind of like a '70s stepdad gym kind of scenario with like an old <laughs> bench. Uh, so we put on like Leonard Skinner and like bench three times a week. So it's like definitely <laughs> keeping me sane. <laughs> awesome. Um, and then we've also got a number of our mods from the Scripts and Scribes Discord, which I believe most of you guys have been on. I know Eric, you did a, a Q and A for us. John, Scott, 
Ian, did you do a Q&A for us on the Discord? Yeah. I think you did too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also for anyone listening who didn't hear before, all these guys are on uh, Scripts and Scribes. We have podcast episodes. Um, so definitely check them out. But VY, Kat, uh, Remy. Um, so I don't know. Yelena, if you feel like it, if anyone has questions for these guys, um, I know uh, we have. Um, please feel free to jump in and chime in and ask um, this is a great opportunity, not just oh, for yeah. you, but for anyone listening. I can I can exploit this for my personal purposes. Yes, please, please. do so. Please do so. <laughs> I am literally about to start my Zoom water bottle tour, like my first general that is not <coughs> someone who like already knew me on Twitter and reached out to me that is like actually set up by my reps is on Monday. So hit me with all the advice, please, people who've been through this before. And, and yeah. for those who don't know the water bottle tours, when you sort of sign up with a new rep, they send you out to basically everyone they know to go meet, you know, production companies and uh, network wherever they can, and you will meet. And so you get a water bottle at every place, or they offer you. You, you used water, to. You take now you don't bottle. even get that. Right. Now you don't get the water bottle because yeah. it's all virtual. No water bottles for you. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah. So anyone who has been through the water bottle tour, have advice with the water bottle tour, other than... Definitely take the water, which is the first piece of advice, I guess. Um, now it's bring your own water, I guess. Yeah. Writer must provide own water. water. Anymore, Kevin. <laughs> yeah. I think that when you're doing your water bottle tour, it's it, it's probably maybe the most excited people are going to be about you having just read you and knowing that you're kind of an emerging new voice. So try to capitalize on the meetings as much as you can with specificity about what you want to be working on next versus just keeping it as general throughout the rapport building is important. So it'll always start off with generalities of where you grew up and what drew you to movies and television and what your sensibilities are and some more personal details. But if there's anything that you think would speak to what they're ultimately doing, a lot of executives and producers nowadays are kind of expecting writers to bring them content versus you expecting them to give you a job. So try to be proactive about sharing things if you've got things in your coffers and be willing to pivot within the conversation if you've got other ideas that may work better than what you're originally thought would be and just go in as prepared as possible to specify. Yeah, on, on that same note, um, it, it really helps to uh, just do your homework on each uh, company you're meeting with, uh, you know, just you know, seeing what they have made recently, what they've made in the past, what they've got in the pipeline. Uh, you know, it'll, it'll give you more to talk about with them. Uh, you know, it'll, it'll make you just look more educated. Uh, and, you know, especially if, if they've done something that really uh, connects with the type of stuff that you want to be doing as a writer, then that's really fertile ground for the conversation. Um, what if I like really want to work on a piece of IP that I know that they're working on. Is that something I should say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, ab do your, ab absolutely. Do your research though and make sure that um, they don't, they haven't already announced that they're hiring, they've hired someone. Um, do you, you know, if you're like, I want to work on, I don't know, Masters of the Universe or whatever and be like, oh, we already have a director or, you know, or whatever, you know, like, do your research on it so you don't put them in a slightly awkward position of having to be like, actually we already hired someone for that. Um, that yeah, well, would be yeah. the only thing I would say on that point. 
I, yeah, I've, I've had, I've been in that situation before where like, you know, I, I knew that they had this piece of IP. I knew that they already had a writer on it, but you know, to kind of help specify who I am and what I'm passionate about, I, I leave it as like, Hey, listen, if you, uh, if things don't work out with, with that, that other guy, I have loved <laughs> X projects since I was point. 10 yeah. years really old. Good point, actually, actually I forgot that has worked out for clients in the past, actually. Um, and if they're staffing too, you know, like if, if even if you aren't the showrunner, like, if they have an IP that you are super excited about, they're staffing that sucker someday soon. If you go, you go in, you know, all in on God, I love this thing, then they'll they'll remember you more for that too. That's really so. smart. Yeah. Really okay, smart. cool. One of the people I'm meeting with is like she's. I don't know if she's on that project at the company, but she's at the company that is adapting like the thing that I the the. YA book series that I genuinely thought was real to the point of nearly getting arrested over it as a child. <laughs> it seems like there's a story to that. <laughs> okay. Go on. So Sir, I don't want to interrupt everyone, but I do want to say goodbye. I do have something at 1130 I have to attend to, oh, but it's been so wonderful to see everyone and to meet the new people and um, everyone stay safe and have a happy holiday next week. Thank you for coming. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. It's so funny, like, seeing John not in a blazer and collared shirt ah. because you're just, like, permanently your Twitter avatar to me. I know. That's <laughs> my God. When, I, when, I, when, when that all that stuff went down, sometimes people are like, just like a guy in a suit. Just, of course, a man in a suit thinks these things. But whatever, Sue. Like, no, like, I wore a suit for a nice photo once, you know? <laughs> that brings I, know, up I mean, Ian, as you know, Ian, Ian can attest, I wear a suit every day at work. It's very important. We have all our meetings, always in a suit, from like Sam Raimi or Paul Feig, or I'm just in a suit every day. That's you have to bring the professionalism. Oh, to yeah. Well, John's actually a never nude. Like, he wears the suit in the shower. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Uh, uh, the point I wanted to bring up about Twitter earlier, uh, we had some examples of how it can help your career. I just want everyone listening to know it can equally have a chance of hurting your career. So be careful out there on social media because uh, I've definitely heard enough horror stories. Um, Amy Berg, who is a friend of mine who worked mm. with us on Warrior Nun, uh, I asked her one time, as a drama writer, uh, do you think uh, Twitter can help your career? And she said, it has a lot better chance of hurting it, but maybe. And I think that's probably my answer as well. Yeah, I mean, what I would Amy say, follows me. Is she trying to tell me something? <laughs> <laughs> what I would say is this, is that um, this is small, but like I keep kind of walking around it, but like that Craig Mason blow up. I mean, when it happened for me and when people kind of piled on, I, you know, I was cognizant of the people, of, of the situation. And so, you know, it is something where like, you know, you notice kind of what people are saying and you're very aware of that kind of stuff. And it can be, I think the thing that I learned from that whole experience was like there was someone who had kind of liked one of the really unfortunate tweets about me. Um, and I, it was someone I knew. I wasn't a friendly, I wasn't, they weren't my close friend or anything, but it was someone I'd met and talked to. And I reached out to the person and I was like, hey, like, what's up? Like, you know me. And they're like, well, I didn't really pay much attention to what it was. It just sounded funny. So I was like, well, that kind of hurt my feelings, man. Because, like, you know me and you know I'm not a fraud or whatever. Um, and uh, we actually had a great conversation from it. And then actually Amy Berg, um, Brandon, you just referenced, had a big thing that happened around the same time. And she talked about how she'd been really hurt by trying to be helpful. And people kind of, like, laughed at her and made fun of her for that, for doing just really kind things. 
and it kind of clicked for this this buddy and he would like reach out to me we actually had a great phone call we've emailed since and like you know and it worked out nicely you know and actually you know when I was really kind of in a dark place with everything, I, I blocked a few people because I just got felt really hurt, you know? And then like those people actually got really upset, even though they were saying like that, what I had to say was pointless. But anyways, I unblocked them. In fact, I unblocked everybody except for like people who said racist or sexist or homophobic things. I only have like three or four people blocked um, who said that to me. Um, and then I unblocked them and, and I explained to a bunch of the people that I had blocked who complained about it, why I was like, hey, I was in a really... I felt really attacked that night. And so I just kind of like acted lashed out or whatever. Um, and it actually started like, I started following them and like we, it started, it turned out to be a positive thing. But I, what I would say is that like, like earlier on, there was like an exchange that happened that where like Ian actually got involved as well. And there was someone I was trying to like level with somebody. And I was like, Hey, like, like I'm not some, but actually this is a person who accused me of just being a guy in a suit. And I was like, hey, I'm like not just some guy in a suit. I'm actually from Vancouver, which is where you're from as well. And I went to UBC, which is where you went to college, as I can tell from your bio, you know. And then the person, instead of like being like, oh, wow, you're a real person. They're like, this just makes you more suspect that you're trying to be my friend. And I wasn't trying to sell anyone anything. And I, and I don't try to sell anyone anything. I, I don't sell, I'm not selling notes. I don't do anything. But I was trying to connect to them as a human being, you know. And I think that is the thing for Twitter is that like, we're all human beings on this and we all have feelings on the other end. And no matter how many, you know, people sometimes perceive they're like, Oh, you're inside the garden wall or you're like some, you know, I don't know, whatever. And, and it's, it's not, we're all just human beings. And, and the experience I went through was really, really rough for me for that week. It was, it was tough. And it was just tough to see people who you respect being really um, dismissive of you, you know? And then there were people who I liked, who like I followed, who like liked those tweets about me. And that was really not, not fun for me. There's people I'd met in real life, you know? Um, and so I, I guess what I'm saying to Brendan's point, it's a, long, it's a long point, is that I think your actions can sometimes have ripple effects that maybe we don't intend. It certainly made me look at things I've done and the way I've acted. And I don't think I've ever done anything too terrible, but it certainly made me more cognizant of the effects that these little things have. Um, and I'm not perfect by any means, but it's it certainly having gone through the experience took me other their side. And I think sometimes people treat Twitter like it's their diary, but it's not. And I've seen, I have a good friend, a high level producer, and he had a meeting with someone and they had a good phone call or a good meeting or whatever. And then he like was on Twitter, like half an hour later. And the guy's like, just had a meeting with the dumbest meeting of my life with this producer. And he's like, dude, I follow you. Like we have a project. What are you doing? You know? And it's like, people, I don't know what they think, you know, about these things. And I think you have to imagine, um, you know, and I may have spoken about this from some of my clients, that anything you've written, it's like that line in social network, the internet is written in pen, it's not written in pencil, you know? And there are effects on the other end of these things. And I'm sorry for kind of twisting the point around, but it, you know, but what, if you ask what I learned in Twitter, that, that I guess, sorry, in, in, in quarantine, that was maybe the fuller answer, mm. is that because we've all moved virtual and digital at this point, those are our, our key interactions, you know? And I think if I had been like taking lunches and meetings and the normal stuff that I do, maybe, I mean, A, I would not be as active on Twitter and B, maybe it wouldn't have had such resonance because I'd be having lunch with studio exactly like, what? Something's going on on Twitter? Like they're just not aware. But I would say there's two kinds of people on Twitter or vis-a-vis -vis Twitter, people who are completely aware of Twitter and completely who are 
all completely unaware. And I would say the majority of the industry is actually completely unaware of Twitter. Like if you're a big deal on Twitter or whatever, uh, people may, most people are not aware of it. But if you are aware of Twitter, you're probably really into Twitter. And it has a big effect on those things, you know? And I've had some good relationships come through it, you know? Elena, you and I have spoken before, and Eric has spoken, and, you know, stuff like other kind of, I try to be helpful in certain ways. Um, but, you know, there's been negative experiences about it. And I don't, sorry, Brendan, you made a really good point about Twitter. I didn't want to make it all about myself necessarily, but I guess what I would say is that, like, I've kind of seen the positive stuff and the, and the negative stuff. And unfortunately, when the negative stuff does happen, um, I, I can't sit here and be like, oh, yeah, if someone, like, said really nasty stuff about me in the internet that I'd be super excited to read their screenplay. You know, like I'm not naming, I don't yeah. keep a list of names or anything, but I do. I was going to say, I think like everything you just laid out is kind of mirrors my experience on Twitter. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, you mentioned Craig, I had never connected with him directly, but you know, there was a lot of big, you know, I, I mentioned I am very involved with guild, politics and I'm uh, in Democratic Socialists of America. I was big into Bernie. And so that put me on the opposite side of a lot of my bosses and a lot of my industry peers in the primary. And for me, it was just about, you have to go with those things like we're having fun in kind of a salon, we're exchanging ideas, we're not taking it personally. And if someone does take what you say personally, like it's okay to slide in the DM and to be like, hey, uh, you know, I, I didn't mean it that way. I, I didn't want it to go beyond what it was because you know someone like Craig is, is big in the industry and he's also very very opinionated and I think he has a lot of he might be a great writer he's got a lot of bad opinions and Twitter is a place where I can say I think this opinion is bad only if the person is going to be receptive to that and if they're not uh, you just kind of have to be aware of that and like a rule of thumb for myself is I like to be very political on Twitter I like to comment on social things I never 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 speak ill of film or television work I don't like uh, because I don't see at this point in my life a gain there. And because I'm so outspoken about other aspects of culture and politics, uh, it's just easier for me to save my skin a little bit on the back end by not saying something I regret because I go in with a showrunner meeting of uh, the writer of a film I hated. Yeah, that is like, by the way, a client rule for me. Don't talk shit about things positive. Like if you look at my Twitter feed, it's all like Queens Gambit's great or, you know, things I love that are great. If there's things I don't like, I'm not going to talk about them. Because by the way, like no one goes in intending to make a bad movie or a bad TV show or, or whatever. Is like everyone tries to make something good. And I've, you know, in, I have varying experiences in my career and otherwise. And, and you know, it's, so to be like so-and-so, like it's just a bad writer because this thing, well, they may have been rewritten or they something might have happened. And so it's really hard. So I would say what Brendan said is, is absolutely smart, especially for anyone up and coming. Don't talk shit. Don't be like, the last Transformers movie was the worst thing of all time. And then five years later from now, you're working with Lorenzo Bonaventura. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> or whatever, you know? It, it's just not yeah. as smart. And there's no upside to it. There's no upside to being mean on the internet. I really don't think, you know? Especially about the industry that we work in. Yeah, uh, like a while ago, John had me purge my entire Reddit account <laughs> Uh, he's like, listen, just tell people to that, Ian. So go back to the way back. <laughs> well, it's, Good it's advice for now. everyone. All the bad shit's already out of there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's a fantastic point because, like, like we work in such a small town, you don't know, you know, who you're going to cross paths with in in the future, and uh, you gain literally nothing from saying something nasty about another filmmaker. Like the 
you know, it, it, it's, it's something where like, I, you know, if, if I'm on social media commenting on film now, uh, anything I say in public is, is going to be positive with the exception of if it's about Max Landis, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's Thank a good you for point that. though. Um, you know, we're, we're not saying don't speak up about something that's a moral imperative. And I think that's a real key difference, you know, especially uh, a lot of the professionals on this panel are men. And, you know, when someone like Max Landis does what he does, it's important that we speak up and say, this is unacceptable when there's labor abuses, things like that. But that's got nothing to do with, uh, as Ian said and John said, whether you like Queen's Gambit or not. Yeah, I'd be, when it comes to content judgments, uh, they're all relative, you know? I think Below Deck is great. Other people may think it's trash. Um, but uh, they don't, but Steven Soderbergh got me into Below Deck, so that makes it okay empirically. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I think you don't need to, that absolutely, I think what Brendan says is exactly perfect. It's important to speak about about moral and, and, and things like that and, and, and be, you know, but when it comes to content judgments, I mean, come on, you know. Save it, save it for your DMs. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll add too that if, you, if you've had the uh, good fortune of creating something that, you know, the world has got to see, avoid the people that slide into your replies and want to start a fight. You know, I, I default to, thanks for watching. I appreciate that. You know, like if they, if they, if they, if you say you're a part of a thing and they are like, yeah, that sucks. You're just, I just, I always default to, Oh, I appreciate you watching it. That's thanks. Thanks so much. And uh, take care. You know, like getting into a fight with the na a nameless face, faceless person on Twitter is just no, negative value. So just add that two cents. Life's too short. Exactly. So basically the golden rule for Twitter is to only write West Wing specs <laughs> on Twitter and nothing else. That is what Twitter I mean, is for. Be a better right? that place is... if that was the case, right? I mean, no, absolutely. It might get a little repetitive. Entire purpose of Twitter as, as I understand it. That is why it was invented. <laughs> you know, off the, um, oh. the general meeting question, for Yelena, which oh, yeah. uh, which was a really good one, and I'm actually weirdly I was I'd ask people like other threads I should write about um, <laughs> other things, and one of the threads had been actually like what you do after you sign with someone, and one of those things is actually obviously doing the doing the general meeting tour, the water bottle tour, and I actually had a bunch of clients, the people I signed of queer letters recently do that, so um, I did have a couple of things just to, some some tips as as it were for that, and the first thing I would say is that. Um, Think of general meetings as, and this is going to sound weird, almost like friendship dates. And your goal out of the general meeting is to get them to like you, okay? Now, because they already know you're talented. That's why they're meeting you, okay? So, because I have a lot of clients that go and they're like, how do I sell them on that I'm talented? I'm like, well, that they already met with you. So they're meeting with you. So, because there's a lot of talented writers out there. So there's a lot, a lot of writers who are talented. But what people want to work with are people who are talented, yes, but that they like to work with because the process of working on things can be months, sometimes years. And so if they're going to work with someone, if there's five people who are talented, they're going to be like, well, of those five people, who do I like the most? You know, who do I really connect with? Who would I feel like they understand me and I understand them and I enjoy speaking to them. And so um, you're, don't worry about, don't be like, so I wrote this script five years ago and then I wrote this other script five years ago. Like don't view it as an opportunity to pitch things necessarily, unless there are things that feel, you know, 
that they're, they work within the context of the meeting. If it naturally flows there, but don't sit down there and be like, okay, great meeting you. Here's five things I want to pitch you right now. And like, they're not signing up for a pitch fest. They're signing up to get to know you as a person. And in my experience, the ideal thing is they like, sometimes they'll leave the meeting and be like, oh, I have something I'm going to pitch you like immediately. But more often than not, you're laying a groundwork for people to get to know you. So then in the next six months, next year or so, they're like, you know what? I just read this great book. Or I read this article or like, you know, we're staffing up this show. You know who'd be great for it? Elena, you know, and that's, that's really what it is. Um, it's laying a groundwork of relationships. And I see a lot of people on Twitter being like, general meetings are pointless. They never resulted in anything for me. And like, they don't until they do, you know? And, you know, it just, you never quite know what comes of it. It could be two years down the road and someone's like, actually, you know, I would think this would be great for so-and-so. Um, that's yeah, I mean, kind of the thing. Is it's <laughs> all about relationships and getting people to know you. They already know that they like your writing. So that doesn't, you know, so that's good. Now it's about getting to know you. So I always say sometimes the best general meeting is a meeting in which no work was discussed. And you just discuss the fact that you both like, I don't know, really like Power Rangers or something, you know, or like how interesting things about the Spice Girls movie or something, you know, it's, if, they, <laughs> if you connect with the person on a, on a personal level, talking about horseback riding or whatever, you know, then that is more important than pitching a script that you wrote three years ago or something, you know, because you can always do that down the road once that relationship is established, but it's about connecting with the person and them seeing you not as just a, a screenplay or a pilot or in your case an awesome twitter thread and seeing you as a person and a potential collaborator that's great advice How i remember when i worked in a in a management company and i would be on calls with my boss and he would he he would he always called it the narrative what's the client's narrative and so he would spend 80% of that phone call talking about why the person was interesting and then at the very end he would throw on you know, oh, she wrote a script about X. I'm going to send it over to you. And the person was like already in. They're like, can't wait to read it. It was it was very interesting to to hear that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's uh, the uh, sorry, again. oh, I was just going to ask John a quick follow up about follow up. Um, when you're talking about like still being on somebody's mind months later when they start adapting an interesting book. Uh, how much follow-up conversation has happened since then? Obviously, a thank you note if you have their email to send that's a it. thank you note. But that's, that's it. it. Like, honestly, that's the job of your rep, actually. Your rep is like, oh, they just optioned a book. You met Elena. She'd be perfect for that, right? And they're like, yeah. But really what happens in it, having worked in development as well, is that they've made, they're like, you know, I just like Elena. Add her to the list of awesome writers for this or that or sci-fi or whatever the list is, right? Like, let's say someone's meeting with Ian. They're like, oh, I fucking love Ian. Like, we add him to my action sci-fi and thriller lists and horror lists or whatever. And Ian writes too many genres, but you get my point, right? <laughs> and that way, they're like, oh, we just optioned this new horror book. Oh, pull up my horror list. Let's look who's on it. Like, that's kind of how it functions in that sense. Um, sometimes it's more immediate. They're just like, oh, you know what? I think so-and-so would be cool. I just met them, right? But more often than not, they've written down, they write your name down on the list and they're keeping lists. They, like one of the things you'll, you'll have conversations with development executives, like anyone got a great thriller list? Anyone got a great action writer list? They keep little lists. And like, there's no one master list for the industry. It's more just like a reference point, you know? So really in terms of follow-up, you should, there shouldn't really, other than like, hey, great to meet you. That's kind of that. It's, here's, here's another really key point. Okay, this is the truth. General meetings are about right about executives trying to get dibs on your next idea before anyone else. That's their goal. 
and your goal is to get dibs on anything that they hear before any of the writers, okay? <laughs> what they're gonna try and, this is, it's a game. Because what'll happen is my client be like, I'll get a call from an executive like, so-and-so pitched me their new idea. I love it. I want to develop with them for free. And I'm like, well, no, I don't want that to happen. No, I want, I want it to be as many people, unless you're the perfect person for it. Mm-hmm. I want to wait until I have a, a, a mass market. I don't want to give you dibs on something just because you took a general meeting with them. You know, They're going to try and get your ideas out of you. And that's why I was telling my clients, be really vague. So like Ian's writing something right now. If Ian was to take a general meeting, I think be like, I'm running this really, I mean, you've been done this a million times, Ian, but it'd be like, I'm running a really cool kind of period supernatural contained thriller. And that's about as much as he would say, because we don't want that person to be like, I heard about Ian's new thing. I want it right now. Give it to me now. Give it to me now. And then we have to be like, no. And then they get all pissed. But the point of the meeting is they want it. That's the point. That's what they're justifying to their boss. I, I, you know, I heard this great thing from Elena. I'm going to make sure we get it before anybody else, you know, but they didn't do it. And they're not giving you money for that. There's not, there's something coming out of that. What you want from them is that they love you so much. Or you're like, Oh, you should read this cool article. You should do that with me. That's the thing. So it's like a weird push pull thing. And really, unless it's the ideal collaborator for an idea. And generally when an idea is an embryonic phase, it's not really, you, they don't give them anything, you know, plus by the way, if you tell them like, I, I really believe idea stealing happens that often necessarily, but arguably if you're like, like if Ian was to break down the entire log line for the thing we're working on, arguably someone could take a piece of that and turn around and do something. To, I don't think that happens very often. Also, it's a tricky game because Ian's like one month away from finishing the script. And if they took it to another writer, chances are it would take them a lot. We'd beat them to market. Right. But why like, why mess with that? You know? Um, so that would, that's the one thing I would say is like, it is a push pull relationship where they're trying to get, they're trying to pull your ideas out of you early so they can literally claim dibs or be like, can I get that before anybody else? That's a question I get a lot when my clients have general meetings. I heard that thing. I'd love to get that before anyone else. I'm like, okay, but that doesn't like help them. That doesn't help me. Because if they get it early, then they can be like, we're going to make an early offer with a ticking clock and then I don't have any other interest played off of against so you're kind of like okay do i take the bird in hand or could i get better you know an ideal scenario you have multiple different buyers interested at the same time or you have a scenario where there's a preemptive offer but it's only like 24 hours before anyone else is getting it so they know that if they like screw around everyone else is going to jump in so that would just does that kind of make sense where you, they want you to give up your cards and you want them to give up their cards and so you just want to be careful a little bit in that sense so I should be guarded about things that I haven't written yet, but I can tell them about things that I have written that are available to be sold. Yeah. Yes. But don't, but don't feel the need to pitch things. Don't feel the need to pitch things. If it comes up organically, if someone's like, oh, I love horseback riding. You're like, well, I wrote a script on horseback riding. That's great. But don't be like, oh, my new screenplay is about horseback riding, but what if they were aliens or whatever? Do you know what I'm saying? Don't pitch things that is an embryonic pitch. That's at least my thing. I don't know. Ian, what do you think? Uh, I, I, I would say that uh, the the more specific that you can be about what you love, the better, because that, that, that helps them identify you better. Uh, I think it's smart to keep it vague when you're telling them about what you're currently working on, unless the goal is to actually partner with them. Like if, if it, you know, there's a place that does something so specific to something that you're working on that you want to form a collaboration with that, that place, then yeah, get, get specific with it. Uh, 
but if if not then there's there's just there's no need to uh to get into specifics it's better to keep it a little bit more general um and yeah you you can't like if if the pitch comes up organically it's totally cool to pitch them an old script as long as it you know it interfaces with what they do and if you're proud of it obviously don't bring up scripts that you're not proud of yeah, I mean, like or oh, they'll yeah, ask for it, and that's all. <laughs> Who wants to read my crappy scripts? Yeah, <laughs> I had that happen. The clients are like, "I just mentioned I wrote something. I'm not very proud of it," and I'm like, "Well, shit, how do I get out of this one?" <laughs> oh well, for those of us with imposter syndrome, there go all of our scripts. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a late visitor, Damon Clark, who is also one of our great moderators of the uh, Scripts and Scribes Discord. Which, I have, if I haven't pitched it enough, be sure to check it out. Um, and he's also a writer, a screenwriter, and also writes a lot of graphic novels, right? Oh, hi. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we've been asking everyone two questions. One, their favorite Thanksgiving food or their favorite food in general. And also one thing you learned during quarantine or something you th- wish you learned. Oh, wow. Um, the food. Gosh, there's so many for Thanksgiving. I really do love my stuffing, though. Yeah. With the gravy. Um, yeah. and what I've learned, I'm going through a process right now with my friend where he's just, he's getting notes for, he's my, he's my writing partner, but this is his thing and he's letting me tag along. So I get to, I get to help him with his notes process and I haven't had to do that yet. So I don't know how I feel. It's not as horrible <laughs> as I've heard, but, uh, it's, it's, it's a process. I have to say something. I see a lot of records in the background and I remember you're also a DJ. Right? Yeah. You well. and DJ Bam Boom, aka <laughs> Ian Shore, um, you guys are both DJs. Do you guys uh, run in the same circles? We do. We I, know some of the same people. I believe. Well, I know you know Joe P. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Joe's great. Yeah, dude. Like, I mean, like, you, you spit on vinyl, so I, I give you automatic props. Like, uh, I, I, I just barely learned how to play on Pioneer Gear this year, and I've never touched vinyl, so. That, uh, that, that's such a specialized skill set, man. Oh, I'm sitting back so you can't see the gray, but I've been doing it a while. <laughs> like, yeah. I, um, this is just my techno, like more like acid and just like the nice. Yeah, and then my house is on another wall. Holy so you're, shit. A house, you're a house DJ too? Yeah, mostly house. That's what I, I I'm I'm also a DJ and I have monthly what? mixes I put up on Mixcloud. So oh, we'll yeah, share there's three of us here. Oh, well, yeah. well, we, have to, we have to swap mix clouds. Yeah, Do I need I, to learn to DJ to be a writer? Oh, that's <laughs> right. I completely forgot, yeah, Eric. So you were a DJ too. Good gracious. Yeah, that's my other, that's my creative outlet when when I'm not uh, writing. That's, that's the thing I go to the garage and do. So, yeah. Yeah, when, when I first started, I only had, vinyl was the only choice back in like the early 90s. Wow. That's how I learned to do it. Uh, I went to um, Scratch Academy and that they, they forced you to learn on vinyl. And I quickly was like, I suck at this. So I went digital. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, o- I'm okay digitally. I'm okay digitally. I suck as uh, a vinyl. Digital. Oh, vinyl. So, I mean, once you get used to it, it's. Yeah, it's, it's all. Yeah, it's that rhythm and feel. There's, and an, all there's that. a place that teaches you called Scratch Academy how to DJ? Yes, yeah, right here in West LA. I, I live in West LA. It's uh, like a couple. Uh, like less than a mile from my house so yeah it's uh it's this it's this uh it looks like a it's a very nondescript building with a big gate in front of it you wouldn't even know it's a a dj academy um but they're so they're so great it's it's really super cool i started the uh, rough and tumble way i had to 
teach myself and I didn't even own headphones. I would, I would show up to gigs without headphones and ask the, the next DJ if I could use his to play my set. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was bad. That was in the wow, milk crate. That's... You would have the milk crate full of records and everything. Oh, yeah. The good old days. Questlove yeah. still shows up with a milk crate full of records. I saw Questlove at the Ace Hotel and he, he showed up with a milk crate full of records. Oh, so that's rad. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> oh, that's cool as hell. I want to do the Scratch Academy thing. Are you coming with me, John, after the pandemic? Let's do yeah. it. I'm there. Ian Shore promised me DJ lessons, but I think I'll, I'll go with the professionals. We have three DJs here. <laughs> we should, once the pandemic ends, we should have a DJ class with the three of you guys. You guys <laughs> let's, just, wait, let's just have a party for all these people, all of us that are on Twitter dying to meet each other. You know what yeah. I mean? Let's just throw, I throw a party freaking, year. I throw freaking a party house party, year. dude. Yeah. There we go. Oh my gosh, yes. downtown, yep. so... Yeah. Uh, we, it doesn't have to be all dance music either for people that hate dance music. I know there's a lot of people that are like, Bleh. Well, Bar 82 is a, is a video arcade, so we'll just have you guys DJ out oh, in the parking yeah. lot where they have the taco truck, and then everyone else can just play pinball. Well, see, now you got Look me at that. tacos and pinball. Uh, we could do it as like a zoom party like we could we could do it now we could do like a writer christmas party with I mean, all zoom of our DJs are the DJing saddest on parties zoom. i've ever been to good. <laughs> far too many 40th birthdays and such that are zoom parties that's because you're going to 40th birthdays that's why they're late. i mean that's yelena that's where i'm at that's where i'm at it's my birthday on sunday and it is uh i, I had my 40th birthday two years ago so that'll give you an idea of where i'm at Happy early well, birthday, John. This, this is your yeah. life, the yeah. universe, and everything birthday. So that's a good one. I know. I was going to say. I was going to say. You're I, the I answer I told my now. dad that. And he goes, what? What's that? <laughs> he's, not a, he's not a Douglas Adams fan. My, my dad, one of his weird claims to fame is that he was told by Douglas Adams that he asked him the strangest question he had ever been asked. <laughs> <laughs> What was the question? What was the question? Yeah, now we need to know what the question was. Don't even understand it because it's like a guy who grew up in the 50s question, but he thought this one weird side character in one of the trilogy plus two was based on these particular twins that appeared in commercials when he was a child. <laughs> and so he emailed Douglas Adams in like the last year of Douglas Adams' life to be like, I've always had this theory that this weird, strange side character that like, nobody even pays attention to in your books is based on these weird twins who were in commercials in the 1950s and and douglas adams just wrote back that is the strangest question i've ever been asked <laughs> did not answer it just said that's the strangest question I've ever oh been asked. so it could be true yeah it we don't know be true. it still could be true still could be true r.i.p the master now before uh if you're listening to this you may not be able to enjoy it but Andrew is a magician since we were talking about all our <gasps> DJ friends. Yeah, uh, Magic Castle, Magic Castle. Yes, Magic Castle. Magic Castle DJ. Here we go. Magic Castle magician. Oh, so, I've been there so many times. We would love to see. I think I've seen you up there. You look familiar. So yeah. Hey. Uh, if you're gonna have a, a a magic trick for us, we would love to see. I have a trick that well, it's new. In fact, you guys are the first people I'm doing this for. Um, so if it doesn't work, that's my out. Um, <laughs> But it's got an audio component to it, so I think it should oh, play wow. for listeners. So, so and listeners, I'm, not viewers. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, both. Um, so the first thing I need to do, and that's for everybody, so we have to pick a playing card uh, as a group. So if somebody wants to name a suit and someone else can name a value, 
We can do it that way, however you guys want. It's up to you. Okay, well, Ian, why don't you pick the value and maybe Eric, you can pick the suit. Uh, okay, um, three. Okay. Uh, King. Well, right? that's going to be tricky. Nope. The three of kings <laughs> is not a card um, that, I, that I'm familiar with. Yes. Uh, but if you have right. a, a um, suit. Uh, heart. Jeez. Sorry. Brain. Oh, God. It I'm happens. This for you. It's a lot of pressure. Three of hearts. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I'm going to make a phone call. Um, and I'm going to need, uh, but I'm not going to pick the number. Y'all are going to pick the number for me. So uh, somebody give me the, uh, give me an area code. Ideally in the United States, because I'm paying for this, so. 303, Colorado. 303? Okay, 303. And then somebody else give me three more numbers. 527. 527, and then give me the last four. Anyone? Uh, 0368. 0368. So we have, I don't know if you can see that. Uh, it's kind of like... washed out. There oh, we go. There, there, there. Yeah, we can see. We can there see. we go. Okay, three zero three five two seven zero three six eight. Does anybody know anyone at this phone number? Not yet. No, not yet. We're gonna <laughs> find out. Let's see if this works. Hopefully, you can hear that. Uh, it's dialing. Your call cannot be completed as dialed. Okay, Please well, check the number and dial again. we tried. Hang on. No uh, yeah, I got you. All right, we'll try one more time. Sorry, give me, what was it, 303? 303. 303, okay, give me, give me three different numbers. Uh, 217. 217, okay. Uh, 6975. Six, I love it, 6975. And the card was the three of hearts? Yes. Yes. Important not to forget that. Um, I don't know. All right, here we go. We'll try again. Three of hearts. That's a good sign. I hope someone. Thank you for calling Antonio's Pizza. Today we're running two medium pizzas and a two-liter Coke for eighteen ninety-nine. Hopefully. <laughs> okay, so we called a pizza place. Yes. In somewhere <laughs> in Colorado. Hang on. Well, Thank you for holding us for delivery or pickup. Uh, it's for neither. Actually, I'm doing a magic trick. I'm wondering if you could help me out for a second on a magic trick. Are you ordering a pizza? No, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, my name's Andrew. I'm a magician. I'm doing a magic trick. I'm wondering if you can just name a playing card for me, any playing card in the deck. Uh, just, wait, just name a card? Yes, name any playing card. Go for it. Uh, three of hearts. What? You got it. That's what? all I needed. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for calling Antonio. Uh, thank you. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> you pull that off. Is it going? All right. So it works, wow. I guess. <laughs> anyway. That's just sorcery, man. That's sorcery. That's just wrong. But so wow. right. <laughs> Witch! Yeah. Witch! Exactly. <laughs> I'll take it. Hire me. Uh, do you do that kind of stuff when you go in for uh, showrunner meetings and things? I've never been on a show on me. No, um, I not typically. I'll usually have something. There's a very like mixed reaction about amongst the magician community about should you do magic tricks just in meetings in general. Right. But I always have like a deck of cards with me or Rubik's Cube. I don't do a lot of Rubik's Cube magic um, just in case. 
if they put you on the spot, then you want to be ready. Ah, gotcha. Has there been a show yet where it's like a magician, but he solves crimes? Yes. Uh, Yes. It was on ABC for like a season. What was it called? Deception? Uh, Yes. Yes. That's right. That's Andrew. I can't. You didn't get stopped on that show. I don't know what to say. Yeah, it's a. It would still be on if I was there, but yeah. they, they didn't call me. So it'd be that's... like this. It appears that this person was murdered by a hummingbird. <laughs> call that. That's a callback. Call call back. Perfect. I believe the writers call it. <laughs> Andrew, you have Phyllis's desk, right? I'm sitting at Phyllis's desk from the office right now. Yes. What? I yeah. It's the weirdest, ugliest piece of furniture that I own. But that's amazing. That's awesome. Is there a yeah. story behind this that we missed? Um, it's, it's on the podcast we recorded, but you can relay it again. Yeah, I can't believe you <laughs> haven't memorized that episode. <laughs> I might have. <laughs> uh, no, they were. I worked on the show in season. Well, I worked for Universal Media Studios in season four, and then they were. A couple years ago, they were getting rid of a bunch of the stuff, and somebody gave me a heads up that was still there that was like, you should get in on this. And so I locked down Phyllis's desk, which still has the phone sheet for Dunder Mifflin. In fact, the phone, the uh, the um, the extension for the kitchen is 420, so someone had some fun. <laughs> but, yep. I have to say I'm disappointed that Brendan doesn't have some background of some classic hollywood bar in the background which during the beginning of the pandemic i think he always had a new you know dantanas or something like that and yeah, now it's just your my, well, living room my, my room was running uh warrior nun was running through the first couple months of pandemic and i would do like a new dive bar every day because i missed them so dearly you know frolic room or mm. what have you and then after like two months and i mean you know i've been to a lot of bars I ran out and that just was so depressing to me that we were still in lockdown. And that was five months ago now. So I gave up on the zoom backgrounds. I felt like very cursed. And now we don't even know if these bars are going to reopen. So it's less fun uh, than it was back then. Swingers is coming back though. I saw that. Yes. That is like my happiest news of the lockdown is that swingers got unclosed. I love swingers. Can I ask a question though? Is we all really actually like the food of swingers, or is it, I think it's just the vibe. <laughs> Somebody called me out. No, on, of course on not. Because I was like, I, like I don't food. like the food. I like the food there. Like the one hundred and one cafe food, no, or whatever. The, is it one hundred and one? Something. Yeah, cafe. Yeah, cafe one hundred and one. Cafe one hundred and one. Terrible, terrible food. But I love <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. For yeah. me, swingers, swingers is better food, but it's the vibe. It's like a, I used to have yeah. all my lunch meetings there. Hey guys, I, I got a like, I got a bounce, but it, it was there. lovely talking with you. Bye, <laughs> Ian. Take care. Um, so as we're running short on time, uh, I wanted to see maybe one thing that everyone is thankful for since this is our Thanksgiving episode. Uh, so why don't we start with Andrew, since you just regaled us with your magic, your wizardry, your sorcery. Uh, <laughs> I'm just thankful for my gift. No. Um, <laughs> I, we're all uh, thankful for that, Andrew. Yeah. Um, I've actually been weirdly productive during all this in terms of uh, development stuff. And I think that I would have been maybe a little bit less so if the world was a little bit more open. So I've actually uh, just thankful for having been able to kind of get up and, and keep writing. Cause I know that's been really tough for a lot of, a lot of people. And it's been tough for me at some points as well, but um, yeah, I've, I've put some cool stuff together that 
hopefully something will happen with. So I'm grateful that my fingers are still flying across the keys. And thankful that your cat is not on your keyboard right now, right? Yeah. I'm not sure if he <laughs> has moved in all in the last two no, hours. He, he might be there. dead. I'm not, I'm not positive. <laughs> He's moving a Magic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brendan. Got to come back to me. I got to think for a second. Okay. VY. VY. Uh, I don't know. I guess everything. We're still okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, that we're all still safe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's a good thing to be thankful for. Um, Kat? Um, I guess right now that I'm doing okay in college, I know a lot of my friends are like really struggling with this like online learning concept and mm-hmm. I'm struggling the normal college struggle. <laughs> right. Right. John? Um, you know, my first thought is I guess man sounds cheesy or whatever. I guess I'm thankful for my wife, honestly. Um, you know, I don't know. It's like, you, you know, you spend, we used to spend, she usually writes from home. She's a writer, um, and a WGA captain like Mm. Brendan. Um, uh, but, um, you know, I would usually be in my office and say like, oh my God, we're going to be around each other like all the time, but it's been, you know, it's been pretty great. You know, obviously, you know, you're getting used to it, but yeah, really, we always have, we always have fun and, you know, we found ways to kind of like, either you know amuse each other even though we're we're most each other's entire source of entertainment and socialization at this point so yeah mm-hmm. yelena i'm so jealous of you guys who are like doing fun union stuff i love unions so much like i want to do all the union politics <laughs> uh someday someday i'm the biggest dork about wga elections that is not in the wga i read all of the candidate statements and have like know exactly who I'm voting for, even though I have no vote. (laughs) (laughs) I just like unions. I love like old, like old union history stuff and like pictures of like old strikes. (laughs) Um, No, what I'm thankful for is that a whole bunch of my friends met with unexpected success, like at kind of the same time that my Twitter thing blew up and I got my reps. So I didn't have to be the one asshole in my friend group who's succeeding in 2020 and talking about like exciting new fun things. At least like everybody has an exciting new fun thing so that I'm not just like, well, I'm thriving in 2020. (laughs) So I'm very thankful to be sharing like some good news in a year that has been 99% bad news with a bunch of people that I love. I think it's awesome that you would specified that like specifically like you didn't want to be the only one having good news as opposed to the opposite which was my initial thought of you didn't want to be the one who didn't have good news you know everyone else got reps and you didn't you know everyone else had good stuff it was the opposite so that was a real testament to your character i think that's awesome uh, it's it's we all so when my best friend Britt and I which is like I told my reps in our first meeting I was like the three words that you're going to hear out of or four words you're going to hear out of my mouth the most often is like my best friend Britt my best friend Britt <laughs> called me the other day my best friend Britt said that my best friend Britt is working on um <laughs> so like my like platonic life partner um my best friend Britt and I quit our tech jobs three years ago and we had this thing where we were like, it's going to take us three years. It's going to take us three years. It's going to take us three years. And uh, she is, she just started. I don't think I can say exactly what her job is. It's not, not a 
she's not on a writing staff yet but she just started an exciting job and I just got reps and it was like almost to the month three years from when we were like nice. we did like that fist bump and we were like three years nice um Remy things you're thankful for or something you're thankful for um I guess I want to mention the online screenwriting community hmm. so being a discord service of or writing groups or whatever because uh there's a lot of kindness in there and we're all in the same basket and uh, it's been really helpful for me uh, during lockdown time. So yeah, I want to mention that. Great. Eric. Uh, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to circle back to what John said. I'm just thankful during this time that, uh, you know, I've been able to be with my wife and kid and we've all played it very safe and been very smart about everything that's going on. Um, I, my heart goes out to anyone that hasn't had somebody hanging out with them uh, during this, this last eight months, nine months, whatever it's been. Um, you know, I think it's important everybody realize, you know, there are a lot of people that are doing this by themselves. So, you know, uh, that's why I think the social media uh, construct has been so important for people to have connection and talk to each other, even if they don't know each other, it's somebody that somebody to reach out to and say, Hey, listen to me. And, uh, uh, I got stuff to say and can you reply back? <laughs> so, um, you know, I just, I'm, I'm thankful that we have our, 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 I have my real people and I have, we have our online people and that, uh, you know, we're all just trying to keep our sanity. Mm -hmm. Damon. Um, that's kind of like a reoccurring theme. I'm going to go with family and friends as well for various reasons, but, we just, you know, holding each other up, you mm -hmm. know, keeping everyone sane, just in trucking forward. Right. And back to Brendan. All right. I, I finally have one. You know, talking about social media, um, I've been so thrilled the last two weeks to go on Twitter and not have the only conversation be about our president. And I look forward to that continuing uh, just because, you know, especially because like it's our only social interaction. I want to hear about like, some dumb thing a celebrity said or some book I've never heard of or some buried treasure discovered off of some coast and not like the undersecretary of the interior, like <laughs> mowing down all the caribou in captivity or something. And, and we can't do anything about it. So I'm very excited uh, to not think about the Oval Office every day. That's something very, very good to be thankful for. Um, and Evan, you got to answer the question yourself, man. No, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's similar to Eric's. Um, and Eric and I, you know, each other, you know, our kids go to school together. Um, you know, Brendan was, you know, uh, uh, we just came to your, um, you know, we, we both got puppies recently, which is something to be thankful well, for, yep. right? Yeah, um, both got puppies, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's family and uh, friends, whether they're, you know, here present with us, like um, some of us have. And, or online, you know, uh, I guess Eric had mentioned both he's thankful for his, his real family and his online family. And now, I mean, I guess some of it's like meeting here, uh, people that, that we've talked to online that, you know, I talked to, uh, you know, VY and Kat and Damon and, and Remy uh, almost every day on, on Discord, but yet to see you guys and to be able to chat here and, and interact differently, it's, it's definitely interesting. Um, so I'm thankful for that as well. Cause you know, being, it's great to be home with your family and, and see your family. Um, but it's also, it's, it's a small 
fishbowl. So to be able to interact with people around the world um, and, and make friendships and, and stuff like that, I think is, is something that's, we're fortunate that we live in an era where that can happen. Yeah, but imagine if this happened 20 years ago. In this period that, that the Discord and, and the things that you do online, mm -hmm. the have, has there been a real increase in, in terms of the, the interaction that people have had? Have you, you know, I was curious on that. There definitely was initially. Initially, yeah. there was, you know, a big spike where people were definitely seeking out uh, contact. Now, I think it's sort of normalized and a lot of people are going back to their normal lives and it could switch again now that everything's locking down again. It could come back to uh, people being indoors, uh, people being quarantined and people looking for a different outlet, especially if they're, you know, uh, quarantining alone. So this is definitely... You know, it's a terrible time to quarantine, but it's also probably the best time in terms of being able to have these sort of video conference calls where we can all get together and talk about our favorite foods. And yeah, so you get the pandemic that got mentioned on the crown. Now, like it was the pandemic of 1879 to 1892 or whatever. And it was like, it was like three years and I, or 1882. I was like, holy shit. Like, what are they doing the pandemic in the 1800s, man? Right? They had right? nothing. Yeah. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. <laughs> and when you're done, read it again. <laughs> and it was like the, it was like about one of the prince, like the 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 heir apparent to the throne of England had died, uh, and I was like, damn man, like like. You know. Do you guys know about the Middle Ages double sleep thing where people had two yeah. sleeps? Yeah. Mm -mm. Is that where like, there's some weird meal or something came from the double sleep? I can't remember. It's like why yeah. things are a certain way. Well, there's um. Apparently, when humans are not exposed to electric light at all, we don't sleep once per night, we sleep twice. Right. Uh, because in study of medieval texts, there is a very kind of universal around the world phenomenon where people would go to bed with the sun and then they would wake up in like the wee hours of the night and they like, if they were in like a Christian area, they would often use that time to study the Bible and pray. If they were espoused, they would often have sex at that time. Uh, they would often have a meal and then they would go back to sleep and sleep until shortly before sunrise. Huh. I feel like I, I double me. sleep all the time. Yeah, that's how <laughs> I live now. <laughs> that, that sounds like, sounds like 2020 right now. Yeah. yeah, so if you do that, like, don't feel bad about it. That's actually the natural human sleep and sleeping for a solid eight hours is completely an artificial invention by electric light. Hmm. And more idea. Um, and before we go, I wanted to give our, our uh, uh, mods who are also young up-and-coming writers, uh, VY, Remy, Kat, uh, Damon, you've got some stuff going. But anyway, the opportunity to ask our lit rep, our writer, friends here, questions that may benefit you as well as our listeners, viewers, um, because this is a great opportunity to pick brains, um, you know. Brendan, not uh, Brendan, and actually Andrew, uh, not only uh, write on staff, but have uh, uh, worked uh, as support staff, which is, you know, for a lot of people, they're they're sort of way in. Um, John knows just about everything about the business. I work in support staff as well. Oh yeah, so did I? Yeah, so did there I. you go. Um, so questions. Now's your opportunity. Questions, please. Anyone? Damon's got something. No, but Brendan and I were supposed to go get a drink. This happened like over a year ago because we know we have a mutual friend. So mm. We were supposed to meet up. Hi, Brendan. You know my How's friend. Eli, you know my friend Eli over at the district. 
Oh. Are we like, yeah. Is it Elias Girdler? It is, yeah. Yeah, I just spoke to him yesterday. Oh, did you really? Hmm? Yeah. Oh. Great guy. He's, he is, yeah, he just got back into town recently. But, uh, yeah, so Brendan, drink. John, you're welcome to come, too. Sure. Town is very, you know, this is great proof of, like, how small the town is. Right. It is a very, very small. I was, like, thinking, like, um, Chris Bremner just got announced that he's writing some big project, and I had met him through his now wife, Sarah, when he first moved to town, and my friend David O'Leary, he used to work with me at Bellevue, he created, went on to create a TV show project, Blue Book. Um, I knew Graham Moore when he was starting off, when he was co-writing. I was like, wow, like, these people I know have, like, gone on, Graham wanted to win an Oscar for Imitation Game. Like, wow, people I know have, like, gone on to become big successes, and it's, it's, it's interesting, just to say, obviously, it happens for everybody, but, like, the town, you, the people you start off with at random parties and stuff sometimes can go off and become like the people you would read about in the trades. You know, you're like, wow, this is, it is interesting how you stick around long enough. It's almost like a process of attrition. You're stuck, you know, you kind of know everybody. I was talking to um, a guy who's now a business manager, Damien Sicani, who was a former VP at Universal and is now a very prominent business manager, manages uh, for a lot of people, including one of my clients now. And it was just fascinating to hear who he'd come up with and what the generations were like. And, you know, and, and people, not everyone stays in the business, obviously. Some people find different things that they're passionate about. And, and Damien had love to go do that. But it's always interesting how small just the connections are if you, stay, if you stick around long enough. Um, oh, to your, to your point. Sorry, John. I was just going to say no, that was point. my point. I did, yeah, I just, pitched, I just pitched a show. I pitched a show to Comedy Central last week. And the guy that I pitched to, we both started out as assistants i was a writer's assistant he was an executive assistant at fox so it's just weird to be at the point now where i go hey i got an idea and he's like i'm the guy that buys them you know so it's just yeah it's, it's crazy point, it's, it's weird how it's, like to your you, point it, yeah just I, I remember like this is such a seems so whatever i i don't know what it seems like but when i was an assistant the idea of my name is in the trades even like in passing in some like John Zelzerny is associated in the most minor of ways, co-story credit or whatever was like, you know, and it's now, minor, but you know, you're framing it on your wall like, though. Still. What's that? Sorry. I said, you're framing it on your wall. Nonetheless, you're still, but this is back when you would actually get trades and they right. printed in things, which is a, uh, you know, it's so funny. I was talking to someone, I was talking how nowadays, obviously everything's digital. Like if I send someone a screenplay, I'm emailing it to them. I'm very thankful I became a, a manager only like six years ago. If I become a manager in the mid 2000s or the, or whenever, even I would have to print things up and get them couriered or mailed or whatever. And it would have been insanely expensive and complicated. Um, but yeah, it's one of those weird things where like, you, you know, you, you, you have more success and it's still exciting. And I actually think it's really important to remember even the most minor, like little good things that happen because there's a lot of rejection in our business, but it is so oh, yeah. cool to be like, wow, like someone that I was an assistant with is now like I was, I was the writer's assistant and um, oh my God, I'm blanking on his name. My, a buddy of mine, I guess this is what happens when you get older, I guess. This is what <laughs> turning 42 um, was this, and I, this is someone I actually speak to regularly was a, um, was, uh, was the script coordinator for the first season of Castle and he ended up going back to Mad Men, where is where he's working. He's, he's going to laugh if he'll ever hear this, but like I can't remember his damn name um, in this moment of time. 
but he went on to co-create um, Escape to Danamora, uh, the miniseries, you know, and like be nominated for Emmys. And I'm like, that's the guy who dressed up as the Joker for Halloween when we were doing Castle, you know? He was like the Joker, but in like the full, he was like the Joker when it was like, you know the Joker in the Dark Knight where he's like dressed up as a nurse and he goes to visit Two-Face in the hospital? The Joker, but in like a weird nerd. Because that was, he went and got like the Mad Men makeup people to do his makeup. So he looked exactly oh, wow. like the Joker awesome. in The Dark Knight. And then he showed up to work in that. I think he thought we were all going to be in costume, but he was the only one <laughs> in costume. Yeah. <laughs> so we all went in for the lunch. Is... And he's, like in, he's in full regalia and we're all just like normal wear. And he's like, yeah. But then the, he goes on to be, you know, write one of the greatest miniseries of the last 10 years, I think, you know? And it's just funny how like, these people like who you'll meet randomly, you know, or, or become friends with kind of scatter out. It's, it's actually really cool. I think. If you want to make it in this town, you have to hang in through at least five iterations of the Joker. And then. <laughs> be. um, there you go. Before we go, I, I wanted to ask everyone to come up with one question for <laughs> another person or just a general question for the, for the group. Um, but I'm going to give you a second to think about it before I put you on the spot. Kevin, you got to give us time for the homework, man. Well, no, no, no. But I'm, but I'm going to ask you a question first while everyone can think about their question oh, for somebody else. Yeah. But your question, you. your question, I think you can answer probably fairly easy. But seeing as how a number of our listeners and viewers are not necessarily in Los Angeles, and we've already made the point that it, it, it behooves them to get here if they can in terms of networking. There's a lot of other opportunities that they might miss out on if they're not here. But um, I know VY is in England and uh, oh, Remy's in France. Uh, uh, Damon, you're in San Diego, so that's not that far. Right. Um, I know Kat's in Virginia. Four writers who, and we've touched base on this in the podcast, but maybe you can you know, expand on it right now. Um, what advice would you have for those writers, um, especially for someone like Kat who's still in school, um, what advice would you have for those writers who are not located in Los Angeles and they want to be screenwriters or TV First writers? thing I would say is right now it doesn't matter. Um, right now, like a, a writer who I signed lives in Connecticut mm-hmm. and I've never met her in person and she got signed by, you know, a big agency and all that kind of stuff and she's been doing a zillion general meetings um, and it doesn't matter. And I also signed two people who live in Los Angeles and the experience for executives is exactly the same other than calculating for like a three hour time difference in terms of setting calls. Um, it doesn't make any difference right now at all. And in fact, I was talking to someone, they're like, oh, I'm going to move to LA and be an assistant. And I'm like, you really don't need to do that right exactly now because I don't think you get a lot of the benefits of being in Los Angeles and being an assistant necessarily because you're not meeting anyone in person. You just don't have that networking that you would normally do. Um, and so I would say right now, it doesn't matter. But a year from now, so here's what I'd say, a year from now, when things are normal, question mark, you know, let's say when things are in a normal scenario, I would say um, in a normal scenario, I would say that if you want to be in TV writing, you got to be in LA. There's just no way around that. You got to be in Los Angeles for TV writing, because what will happen is it'll be like, hey, so... Um, can you go to a meeting on Friday? The room starts on Monday, you know? And so, and that's on like a Wednesday, you know? And you're like, that's how fast it can happen. Really, really does happen, you know? Um, 
you know, people may be more cool about Zoom, but I don't think that if you're if you're the only person on Zoom, I can't see them making an exception for you. You know, maybe Zoomers right. become more normal, but most people I talk to who are in Zoom writers' room, they're not enjoying it. Um, certainly not on a long term level. For feature writers, um, I would say it's less important. You know, one of my clients who's really had an amazing 2020 in profession on a professional sense, Chris Thomas Devlin, who had two movies in production at the same time. Uh, Cobb and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and sold a new spec video, Nasty to Lionsgate. He lives in New York. Um, and, you know, it didn't really make any difference. Well, that's not true. I think it would have been slightly better if he was in LA, but it, it's not the world's biggest deal because he's a feature writer. But he does come, he, well, in non pandemic times, he did come to LA every, like, I don't know, three, four months, you know, for general meetings, for specific project meetings. Sometimes he would fly over a very specific project meeting. If you want to be a feature writer, I would say you have to come to Los Angeles three to four times uh, a year in that's in a normal non pandemic mm. situation for features, but TV, you got to be in LA. I, I don't really see, there are a few writer's rooms in New York, but I mean, I had a client who wanted to like, Oh, I'll be in New York. I'll figure it out. It's really tough because there's not a lot of, and a lot of times they hire out of LA, you know? So being in New York doesn't, isn't at added, added benefit. Um, but you know, for feature writing, it's always going to be better if you're in LA. Like my wife, who is a feature writer, um, we go to parties with, you know, there's agents there and executives there. And, you know, if you meet someone, like one of the executives on her projects has become a really close personal friend of, of ours, her and her husband. And that, you know, just leads to more work because they like each other and they get along. So it's, it's better to be in Los Angeles. But for feature writers, I wouldn't say it's a requirement. For TV writers, I would say it's a requirement. And a quick sappy follow-up to that is, if you want to live a life as an artist, you need to be around other artists. You need to meet people who are going to nourish you creatively. And that is going to be where the art you want to do is happening. And, you know, for film, that can be New York and Austin and London and Berlin. But there's certain types of films that are made in those places. And if that doesn't jive for you, you need to get out here because every kind of thing is made out here. And so you will find your people. And I mean, that's what an artist's life is all about. Yeah, most of my and, advice, by the way, is, is about studio stuff, you know. Um, I think, you know, what Brendan is speaking to is more the, the independent scenes. Um, and so that's a whole different thing. But when I, you know, my clients are generally oriented towards studios for the most part. Um, and so that's, you know, what I'm thinking in terms of, of feature writing. Um, there is no independent TV writing. I mean, not really. So that's you know, where that one, that one kind of comes into play, I would say. I, I'll add to Brendan's point. This is why writers' rooms will come roaring back at some point, because there's one thing that, especially in television, that I, I, I keep hearing is just like that being around like-minded individuals in a room, you know, even though most, uh, not most, some rooms aren't the most ideal um, and they can run long. You miss being around people that make the same stupid jokes you make and like the same stupid stuff you like. And I think that's why writers' rooms are, are, are they're not gone. And I, you know, yeah, you see some chatter on Twitter about that. And uh, I just, I can't see that happening once the world returns to normal. Well, and so much of what happens in the writer's room doesn't happen in the writer's room. It happens when you're taking the walks around a lot or at lunchtime or going to the bathroom or whatever. It's like, yeah. I love, I love going to the bathroom with other writers. It's great. (laughs) Sitting there in the stalls and just like, dude, I got a joke, man. Wait, hold on. My wife always makes sure HR free is okay lunch. with it. Never <laughs> underestimate yeah. free lunch. Free lunch is oh, and that too. That I mean, I I had that conversation on Twitter the other day with someone. I said, look, free lunches. You don't. I ain't mad about it. You know what I mean? And 
I, and I said something about dinners too. And somebody was like, well, dinners means you're going late. I'm like, yeah, it means you're in the writer's room. Okay. So like, uh, mm -hmm. I, you know, anyway. Um, okay. So everyone's questions. We'll start with Andrew. One question for someone else or the group. Uh, I wanted to ask Eric a question, actually. Um, you mentioned that you were uh, pitching to Comedy Central, and I have a show that I'm taking out in January to pitch. Um, and I've talked to a thousand different people, but I'm always interested in the takes on what the pitching process is looking like uh, in this current environment. Uh, I, I mean, I've been pitching. I've been pitching a lot this year, actually, uh, and not really sticking the landing yet. But um, it's it's been it's been interesting. I what I enjoy most about this process, as opposed to being in the room, it seems like it's there's a, a, a succinctness, a, a, a brevity to um, uh, these meetings that I enjoy more than the lollygagging, meandering, hi, how are you, and the awkwardness at the end of the meeting. I, you know, it seems like these, these pitch meetings are just like you pop on, there's two or three or four people there, and they're just like, hey, what are you bringing us? And you go, all right, here it is. So, you know, um, for me, I've really enjoyed that part of the process of just being like, here's my show. Here's who you're going to love. Here's why you're going to love it. And uh, let's talk soon. You know? So um, uh, my advice, my advice on that, on that part of it is just the, the, just keep it, keep it short, keep your, keep your interesting, awesome ideas to the point. Um, and um, you know, uh, not that you have to rush through it, but uh, you know, it, it doesn't have to be, you certainly don't need to take 30 minutes to walk your idea out. Awesome. Great. Yeah. Um, Brendan? Uh, I'm going to go to Eric, too. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a staff writer right now. I think, like a lot of staff writers, I, I want to be a show creator, showrunner. What is one skill uh, you think a lower mid-level writer can work on to set themselves up for success at the showrunner level? Uh, let's see. Uh, I, well, you know, when I, was, when, I was a, when I was a writer's assistant and then a staff writer, um, you know, the thing that I think that is, was most valuable for me is to, um, really pay attention to the, the people that the, the, pay attention and really uh, drink in what the people you love in your room do best and try to take, you know, not everybody is awesome at everything, but like try to take little parts of what, you know, this person over here does well, and this person over here does well, and try to and try to like just bring it all with you when you get to the point where you get to do your own show. Uh, you know, I know that's pie in the sky thinking, but um, but you know, I've I had the really odd and and unique opportunity to like see David Milch in action when I was a PA um, at Stephen Bosco Productions. I got to see him show running NYPD Blue, and then I got to learn from David Cohen with at Futurama and, you know, obviously very different types of shows, but, you know, watching how David did his thing, um, both David's actually, but, but watching how Milch did his thing and uh, even, you know, I, I will say this, this is very specific uh, and I won't take long. Um, David Milch, even when he page one rewrote someone, he never took the credit away from the writer. They always had the written by credit. And I thought that was, I, I just thought that was always outstanding. And I've tried to apply that to my own um, show running. You know, you, your job as a showrunner is to make the staff and the show look like rock stars. It's not your job to make yourself look like a rock star. So David Milch was so freaking cool about that. Like, I, and I'm telling you, he, 
rewrote page one, rewrote a lot of bad scripts at NY. I mean, there were, there were not bad. I'm now this is going to be public and people are going to be like, what an asshole. Um, not bad scripts, just not David Milch level scripts. And David Milch took them to that, you know, really that, that A plus level, but he never put his name on that script unless he wrote it himself. And I always thought that was just such an outstanding, upstanding move um, by him. I just that he, he allowed his writers to, to shine and he never tried to take the take the, the spotlight away from them. I think that was just, I try, I try to apply that in, in my own uh, workspace. So, yeah. Awesome. Okay. Um, VY? Maybe later. Okay. Uh, Kat? <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm trying to, th- I think, I, w- I guess it would go with John. It would be directed to okay. that. Um, Limited series are becoming more and more popular, I've noticed, over streaming, especially on Netflix. But I also know that they are the, like, absolute hardest for a TV writer to, like, sell because it's a limited series. You have to get, like, very strong actor, which requires budget and all that. So is it worth it to consider a writing sample as, like, oh, I want to sell it for a limited series or just be, it's a writing sample for me? I mean, what I would say first, and, and someone hit me up on Twitter and they're like, I just graduated college. Could you tell me how I get a show running job? I was like, mm, yeah, no. Um, you know, I, whenever you're writing something and you're, especially when you're at the level that you're at where you're just kind of really an up-and-coming writer, um, look, I think you just want to think of it like, how do I write the coolest thing I can possibly write? I think the chances of selling it, um, it's not impossible, but it's, it's kind of close to that. Um, it happens, and it's definitely <coughs> has happened a, a fair amount of time. Um, uh, and Eric's going to leave, so now I don't have any. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm, I'm just going to say bye real quick. I got to jump off. <coughs> I don't want to interrupt you, John. No, no, I'll get all you guys. I'm going to catch all you guys on, on Happy the flip side. So, yeah, but take it, it easy, guys. Be well. Bye. Um, you know, I think the chances of someone, an up and coming writer, selling a, 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 a something is really, um, really uh, minimal, unfortunately. Um, so, but in a way it's freeing because you should just write, I tell people write the craziest thing you can think of within reason, obviously, you know, you don't, you don't want to write, I, I guess, yeah, I don't know within reason, but it has to fit within the parameters of a pilot, you know what I'm saying, 30 to 60 pages. Um, so do that. Um, but the reality is between writing a really cool pilot for an ongoing series and a really good pilot for a, for a limited series, there's not really any difference when you're just writing the pilot per se. Um, I would say... <laughs> having tried to sell limited series in the past, they are really hard to sell. Cause here's the thing. You still have to spend all the money on infrastructure costs and marketing costs that you would spell on an ongoing series, but then it's done after one season. Usually Fargo being the exception, but like you look at something like Queens Gambit, there's no Queens Gambit too. At least I don't, it doesn't look like they're planning to have one necessarily. Um, there's no Godless too. You know, I think if you're not Scott Frank, I think it's very hard to do that. Um, so, you know, having tried to sell limited series before, um, it's so funny. I was trying to do this thing, a limited series on the capture of Adolf Eichmann and nobody bit. And then one year later, there was a feature about it and they sold it and went into production immediately. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things where, um, they're very, 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 very hard to sell. Um, and all the stars kind of have to align in a perfect situation, like an escape from Dan or, you know, and I know Craig Mazin was trying to do Chernobyl for a number of years, you know, it took him a long time to get that off the ground, you know, um, and he's obviously a well-known writer. And so, you know, it is one of the things where it's very, very, very hard 
But to answer your base question, I think if you have a really cool idea for a limited series, just write it as a really cool pilot, but make sure, just write it for yourself as an amazing sample. The really, the thing that you want to focus on as an up and coming writer is writing the most amazing, like um, provocative, interesting, intriguing, um, you know, script that will get your representation and down the road, hopefully get you meeting the show writers and get you an agent and all that kind of stuff. You know, you want to write something that people really want to read. I wouldn't worry too much about, can I sell it or not? I mean, cause then people, people do that sometimes and they're like, I wrote this really boring procedural, but that seems to be what's on TV. And I'm like, well, do you, do you like this? No, but it seems like what's saleable. I'm like, well, don't worry about that. Cause no, if nobody wants to read it, you know, cause it's boring, it won't sell and also won't be helpful for you in, in staffing. So that's really kind of my thought process on that stuff. Just to echo that from the writer's side, um, I've only had representation for about six months and what it has taught me top line is I had no clue what can sell and what the marketplace wants. And I'm never going to have as good an idea of that as my reps. And so trying to write to the market at the very best, even if you're on Twitter, checking the trades every day, you're three months behind agents and managers whose job it is to know that. And, uh, it's been astonishing to me. I'll bring something to my manager, I think, is a slam dunk. And he's like, immediately A, B, and C reasons why this is not what the market wants. I'll have an idea I think is extremely stupid, but I like it. And he's like, dude, I kind of see it. And if you just do this and that, and what have you. And the other thing about these limited series that go is like, yeah, if Anya Taylor-Joy wants to be in your limited series, it's going to get made. If Kirsten Dunst wants to be in your weird MLM show, it's going to get made. And if they don't, it's not. So don't look at those exceptions to the rule as what the market wants, because what the market wants is the star that wanted to do it. And so I would just say my approach as a young writer and as an assistant was write what I wanted to write. And then I was in a position when the right manager came along to send him six pilots I was proud of that comprised the Brendan Gallagher brand. He read them and was like, I want to work with you because of what you've built as a writer. And now he's taking what I did and he's saying, okay, I can't sell any of these individual projects, but here's what about your voice, your style, your brand I like, and let's make something we can take out. And that's usually how it goes for writers. So don't put the cart before the horse and think you're going to skip the line. You very well may. You might be Lena Dunham. You might be Issa Rae, but that is a lightning in a bottle thing you can't plan for. It's just simply what they were doing aligned with what the world was interested in hearing at that moment and they struck gold and i hope that happens for you but the best thing you can do is figure out what Catherine's voice is as a writer and who you are as an artist and also lena isa had done her web series for a long long time you know and so she had kind of built a proof of concept and then lena had done tiny furniture and that was a proof of concept for her um absolutely you know and so i think that's the thing to think about is how do i put my voice into the world, whether it's a pilot, which is, by the way, that's the cheapest thing. And the least, you know, if you're making a web series, which, you know, by the way, people are like, I'm making a web series. I'm like, nobody wants a web series. No, no. It's over. Uh, um, is like, I remember I, when I was in film school, I was like, I was like, do I have to direct a short film? And they're like, no, you could write a feature. I'm like, well, a feature costs for, for when I went to, went to NYU, they were like, yeah, it costs 10 to 20 grand to direct, make a short film. I'm like, that's a lot of money. And I was like, or else I could just like, write a feature screenplay and then I could sell it for money down the road, you know, which didn't happen. I guess I want a contest, but 
you know, it, it was like, that made more sense to me. So you can definitely go and do that stuff, but like writing a screenplay costs you nothing but your time or writing a pilot costs you nothing but your time. Making a web series, making a movie costs lots of money and is a very um, exhausting process, which isn't to say it shouldn't be done, but it shouldn't be done lightly, I would say. Mm. Um, and John, do you have a question? I guess you had a question for Eric, but- I did. Do you have a, you have a redirect question? Um, I did, I did. Um, I'm gonna come back to you. Please, yes. Okay, Remy? Yeah, I think uh, Catherine's question was uh, pretty much what I got. I was uh, wondering, uh, John, about the balance when you talk to, to writer that you're thinking about maybe working with, uh, the balance between uh, what's, what could be set up from the portfolio right now compared to uh, what's more samples. And it feels like uh, samples could be okay and could be attractive enough for you. Compared I, to, I've uh, signed people uh, off of one script all the time. In fact, that's often what I sign them off of. Um, look, there's other people, other managers who want to see two or three other ones because they want to make sure that the voice is consistent. Um, yeah. I'm like, oh, if I like your one thing, I'm good with that. What I'm looking for is how, how do I sell you? You know what I'm saying? Okay. How do I get you in a room with a showrunner? How do I get you in a room with a studio executive? How do I get, this is TV in particular, how do I get, you know, or, or even for features, how do I get people to want to read you? Because, you know, I was reading, there's an open show and they were like, and, and we put some of our clients up for they're like, so-and-so has closed submissions. They got 200 scripts in three days. And I was like, oh my God. So like they got 200 scripts for a staff writer position on a show, you know? And it's like, so they're going to go through there and they're probably going to read the ones that sound coolest based on the log lines, you know? Yeah. Um, and so like, that's my, my whole obsession is getting people to want to open, crack open your screenplay and turn the page. Okay. Yeah, I got it. Uh, Damon. You're uh, mine was for Eric as well, but okay. uh, maybe somebody else can answer. So if you're going out to pitch, is there a difference when you're pitching animation is there anything differently that you would do if you pitch animation than you would for a normal script? Maybe Andrew knows? Is he taking out a pitch? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Because I actually, I have two different projects, one of which is animated and one of which is live action. Um, I think it depends on, I actually had a meeting yesterday about this. Um, it depends on what your audience is and where you're taking it. Um, I mean, I've heard so many different things about what a pitch can look like and in terms of visuals and some people like like a lot of visuals and concept stuff. And the show that we're pitching has a musical element to it as well, the animated one. Um, so I think a big part of it for us has been figuring out what the what our demographic is and then trying to kind of tailor it to that. The animated show that I actually, I've written on two different animated shows, um, one which was based on um, a huge piece of IP. So that was already sort of a built-in thing. Um, and they just produced it in-house. And then the other thing that I wrote on for Nickelodeon was um, based on a toy property. And somebody just said, we should make a TV show about this. So um, in terms of, as I said, we haven't actually taken our animated thing out to pitch yet. But I think that um, it's really locking in, like, who who's looking for animated content? Because obviously that's a more limited thing. You're probably, you know depending on if it's like adult animation or, or kids. Um, so we're, we're finding that we have a, not a super wide range of places to go to. So it's been a little bit more about 
figuring out what some place like Netflix or a place like Nickelodeon or Disney or something like that is looking for. Cause it's not like something where we can take it to like 25 different places. And so that's, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, so I guess last question would be for Yelena, unless VY you have something you want to ask? Nope. You're good. All right. Yelena, last question up to you. Oh, my last question. Oh, this is a lot of pressure. Okay. I have a question um, after you, Yelena. So. Oh, okay. So we got two questions. Oh, okay. Thank Less you for taking that pressure off of me. I appreciate that. Well, the question is for, but, partially for you, so just know that's coming. Oh, okay. All right. So thank you for putting that pressure back on me that <laughs> you just took off me. Uh, I think my my question for, I guess, anyone from the group who wants to jump in is what do you foresee for the industry next year? What are your predictions? Nothing good. Uh, well, I guess, I guess it's a little bit better, right? That's, that's all I got is I, I, I think I, I, someone asked me this the other day and I was like, I just hope that it gets better. I, yeah. until, until there is a vaccine and, and most, a lot of people have taken it until uh, it's, it's going to be hard because movies are not, you know, in theaters um, for the most part, I and mean, there are a few, but not what's normal. Making TV shows costs 10 to 20% is more, which is why you're seeing things like Glow get canceled and things that were supposed to, it's kind of like this, if your TV show is going to cost you, let's call it like $100 million for the whole season, it's now going to cost you 120 or 130 when you add in the COVID measures and the reduce and the, how much the schedule takes longer. So it's kind of like, is it worth $130 million? It might've been good at 100, but it might not be good at 130. So if they're just, there is production, but it's just less production than there used to be. So, and then, you know, things, people aren't buying things as much because they don't have as much money going on, you know? So that, that unfortunately is the, is my thing is until we get back to normal. Um, I, you know, and that, and I don't know how long that will take personally. I would say that I uh, have gotten out of the prediction business and I think every writer should do the same. Uh, luckily reps are the ones and studios are the ones that have to figure that out. And uh, I've been continually surprised about what works and what's possible and what doesn't work and what's not possible. For all I know in 10 years, we could only be working in some kind of video game TV hybrid or something. So, uh, you know, in my view, do what makes you happy and try to listen to reps and people you're in meetings with who can give you, information. The only thing I was sure of in the last five years in this business was Quibi would fail. Uh, but I think <laughs> that was self-evident. And uh, I've never been totally accurate about any other forecast I've made at anything in the business. But I have to say, Brendan, were you confident that it would fail as quickly as it did? <laughs> I, I, here's why, um, to me, the premise that young people want short form content is not borne out by the fact they'll watch hour long makeup tutorials. So for me, it was just <laughs> so clearly patently untrue to anyone I spoke to under, you know, younger than me and I'm in my thirties. And, and then the other thing uh, to John's point, you know, I was in New York during the web series boom that had high maintenance and girls and, uh, or, you know, all that stuff, uh, broad city. And I saw, you know, hundreds of web series and only maybe three or four of them get any interest. So I thought, I don't think there is actually a clamoring for 
quick bites. Uh, so I can proudly say I was on the, this is a catastrophe train early on. But to the point about Twitter earlier, I quietly said that in my DMs because, hey, if it had worked and they wanted me to pitch, I've got 10 Quibi ideas ready to go. And the thing that no one ever talks about, which is part, but I mean, number one, this is my point, was that like there was a ton of, I think you people do like short form content, but you can get it for free. You know what I'm saying? They're trying to sell you expensive bottled water on a subscription service. They're like, yeah, but this is the best water. You're like, but I could turn the tap on, it comes out. They're like, yeah, but like, what about this? You know, so there is on YouTube and it's all there, right? And then secondly, uh, I don't, oh, the second thing, thing that no one talks about is after two years, they get the content back, you know? Um, and after seven years, Quibi doesn't own it anymore. Well, that's the reason Quibi never sold to anybody was they didn't actually own any of their programming, which is crazy. They rented it. They paid all that money to rent it. So I don't know. That was really particularly crazy to me. But I think the first point to your point is like, you know, it's like I, I watch a fair amount of Shark Tank and they always go, you solved a problem that doesn't actually exist. And like, that's what I felt <laughs> with Quibi. It's like, they're like, what if people want to short from kind of like, but they already have it. And they're like, yes, but it's not, good enough but we didn't make it so so my question was actually for Yelena and for Brendan was um as as two writers who have recently gotten representation um I'm really curious about your journey towards getting that I mean I guess I know Yelena a little bit about your journey although I'd love to hear about like you know a little bit like of your experiences like before I mean I'm assuming you reached out to reps prior to that all that kind of stuff I especially kind of talked about the three years and all that kind of stuff um could you, could you and Brandon kind of talk about your journey to Gordon's getting representation all that? By the way, I'm going to look down for a second. It's because i got to push my one o'clock Zoom 15 minutes. That's it. I'm listening. I apologize. After you, Yelena. Okay. Um, all right. So, yeah. So, my, my first interactions with reps were after I had my, the first pilot that I wrote placed third in the UCLA pilot writing contest. So I got my name and my face in deadline and my, my log line blasted out to a bunch of agencies and management companies. Actually an assistant at Bellevue, Zach read me, um, among others. And quite reasonably, nobody from that actually wanted to meet with me because I had written one interesting pilot and just really truly was not ready. I've since rewritten that pilot, uh, but I did get to talk to some people. Um, I met with met with a few people before the Twitter thing happened. Always tended to be like, like I kept getting like the, well, I really like you, but it's just not the kind of material I'm interested in because I kind of, I write fairly unusual kind of big swingy things that, that, really just I feel like needed the, a person to be very interested in exactly what I was doing like I have like a YA four horsemen of the apocalypse except they're actually teenage girls that are protecting the climate as elemental warrior guardians scripts like that's just not going to be for everyone <laughs> so to, like made some friends totally fine but completely totally different response from people when the West Wing thing went viral because all of a sudden I felt like I was not chasing reps. Reps were chasing me. I was getting inbound requests to meet. Um, I was like hearing from agents for kind of the first time. Previously I had pretty much exclusively heard from uh, from managers and maybe the occasional like smaller agent, but not like big agencies. Uh, 
And yeah, the thing for me, I met with several people. You, how are you hearing? From, you said you've been hearing from them. How are they? Why? How they are? Why were they reaching out to you? I mean, some of them literally slid into my DMs on Twitter. Uh, some of them, I have a website that makes it very easy to email me. So some of them found my website and emailed me. The people that I actually ended up signing with, though, uh, a producer actually emailed me through my website and asked if she could read something. And she actually asked if she could read some scripts, plural. So I was like, all right, I'll take you literally. I'll send you multiple scripts. So I sent her like four things. Um, and there were there were two of them that she really, really loved and asked if she could pass on to a friend who's literary manager. And I said, yes, of course, absolutely. And literally within two hours of this producer passing on my script, so I kind of think she actually had already passed them on because nobody reads that fast. I get an email from this lit manager that is like, I read these scripts that Nicole sent me and I love them and I'm obsessed and want to set up a Zoom with you as soon as possible. And then she ended up actually bringing in another manager at her company for that Zoom. And they came into the Zoom with like a list of 20 companies that they wanted to try to get me in to meet with right away and a plan for how to brand me and a plan for what I would be doing in the next year. They made other clients available for me to talk to. So I really felt like like this is these are the right people for me because these are people who are really genuinely fans here and who really, really have a vision for me. And they're not just like trying to grab onto me because I got some attention from showrunners and they're like, oh, there's a good chance if we sign her right now, then she'll get hired on her own and we'll be able to commission off of that without really doing any work, which, you know, is not not as exciting as having somebody who's really, really thrilled to work with me on staffing, on development, on open writing assignments, which is, you know, all three of those things are, are part of my manager's plan for me. So, I mean, I had, I was lucky enough to have some amazing people potentially interested in me, including a couple of people who I've been following for years because they're, they're top women managers that some of my friends are clients of and love. And I ended up going with people that I had never heard of or met with before at a company that I had never really thought very much about before, but they they had the plan and the vision and they made me feel like like we were on the same page and we were going to the same place on the same train. That's really helpful. That's re I, lo I always love hearing, because I know my side of things, I always love hearing other people's journeys and the experiences and things like that. It's always really helpful for me to kind of learn and, and, and find out about. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, I have not to, I mean, I didn't go viral with the West Wing thread, but I think I have a similar story uh, otherwise. Uh, I was support staff for about five years on uh, about a half dozen different shows. And so at different times in that process, you know, I would develop something uh, with one of the consulting producers or what have you in the off season. And they would say, thank you for your time. You know, I read your script. I loved it. Let me give it to your manager. And that manager just really wasn't interested, you know, and I done some querying and it led nowhere, what have you. Uh, and then I got staffed in Warrior Nun after being writer's assistant. And then I got an email from an EP I had worked for way back when who was on Revenge and Heartbeat, the first two shows I worked on. And he said, I got an email from a manager. He's looking for young, hungry writers. I thought of you. Maybe you guys should connect. And uh, that is Jermaine Johnson at Zero Gravity. And so uh, we emailed back and forth. Uh, he said, send me some stuff. And you know, like I mentioned before, you know, I'd been at it for half a decade out here. And then I was in New York a few years before that. And so I had maybe five uh, TV samples and two film samples I was proud of. I could send him. And he's like, okay, give me some time to read all this, you know, and he read everything, which I was really grateful for. 
Uh, and we jumped on a Zoom and he just got what I was trying to do. Um, my work, you know, I, I always describe it as dusty. Like I really like Taylor Sheridan. I really like Justified, Fargo, Better Call Saul, those kind of shows. Uh, working class shows. I'm from a very small town. And he got that. You know, he was a history major back in his prior life before he got into uh, the entertainment industry. And so we really connected. And so it was one of those things where uh, to do the dating analogy, you know, I had trouble getting a date for years and years. And then on my first date, it really clicked and we felt like we were on the same page. And so um, we're working together now. And I think the thing that Yelena said that really struck me was being wanted puts you in a really great position as an artist rather and I'm not saying don't send out queries but you know if you if the queries work know that you guys are dating each other you guys are feeling each other out just like a job interview everyone says you're interviewing them and so for me uh, I was surprised how much Jermaine and I talked about what we want and how much that aligned uh, and that can mean do you want to be the kind of journeyman staff writer that doesn't run your own show or do you want to run your own show um do you want to branch out beyond writing to directing or are you also an actor or whatever else it is you do and who are you as an artist and i think that matters to managers and i think there's this perception in the kind of as they call on twitter pre-wga community that it's just about quantity of queries or quantity of uh, connections you make. And I really want to emphasize it's about quality and it's about finding someone that has the same vision for your career that you do. And I think Yelena, even though it sounds like we have very different artistic styles, we said the exact same thing when we were asked this question. It's really interesting. And, you know, I think the thing that I've talked about, people ask me a lot, Sometimes it comes up, people are like, hey, my manager did this. They DM me and they're like, my manager did this. Is this normal? Is this weird? Or like, and a lot of times what happens with the issues with managers and their clients is like, they never discuss. It's like what happens with relationships, unfortunately, where like people start dating and don't act, talk about who they are, or what they're looking for. You know, you want to talk about what you, you want to, you want to hear what their vision for your career is so that when they start enacting it, you want to make sure they actually have one. Uh, when they start enacting it, that it goes well. Um, because the issue oftentimes can be that they're just so happy to have a rep respond to them that they signed without maybe knowing what the, what, what the game plan was. Maybe there wasn't even a game plan. And so I think when you're first meeting with reps, you need to, just like with dating, really interrogate them. Not inter that's the wrong term. But you need to like get to know them and understand what their vision for the future is. Because um, if you don't do that, to some degree, problems are, I wouldn't say that your fault, but you can't be surprised if, if, if communication issues arise because there wasn't enough communication to start off with, you know? I just want to jump in and say, I'm also a zero gravity and I signed with them maybe a year ago. And one of the things that I found interesting when I first met with them was that, uh, to use a, an analogy that I probably a lot of writers understand, it was the, the same thing that I experienced when I would go talk to my therapist which uh, she would say something that I uh, just put something in a completely different perspective. And I'd never thought about it that way before. And I was like, Oh, why didn't I come up with that? You know, on my own. And when I met with my now current reps, it was the same thing where I had a pilot that was, I, I write a lot of stuff that's based on uh, factual events, but then I kind of put my own spin on it. And um, so it was 
my most recent pilot, my manager now said, you know, well, this could work at the history channel. And I, there's a spin for that to work there. And I thought, well, that's like a, something that I had never considered before. So it was kind of, it was interesting. That's a big thing that sold me was like hearing not just that we're on the same page, but that there are like unique avenues that we can take uh, to try and, and get stuff out there that I never would have even considered. Thanks, Anna. That's really helpful, man. I I love hearing the other side because I know my side. I always love hearing other people's sides and their experiences and what they're looking for and what they find helpful. And, you know, one of the questions I ask people when I meet with them and they've had a previous manager and they're looking for a new one, is like, what didn't work in the last relationship? You know, what, what went wrong? I mean, I, it's so funny. It's like, I know when you're dating, you're not supposed to ask questions about previous relationships or whatever, but I think that's kind of insane. You know, because you want to be like, well, what didn't work for you last time? The person's like, oh, well, they like to go out hiking all the time and I hate hiking. You're like, well, I like hiking. It's probably going to be a problem, you know? And it's the same thing professionally. I want to hear what didn't work in the last rep relationship because I want to make sure that A, I don't do that or B, that if they're like, oh yeah, that person really wanted me to make money, but I have no interest in making money. I'm like, well, that, oh, that might be a little bit of a problem, you know? Um, so I think for me, I'm, I'm very big on communication and clarity up front. Um, and I think that writers, you know, things are better for writers when, when they do the same thing, by the way, that's true of any relationship you get into professionally or otherwise. Um, you know, if you're working with a producer, talk about what the game plan is. I mean, a lot of times, sometimes what happens is is you're working with another writer. Is it going to be a 50, 50 split? I've had scenarios where they thought it was 50, 50. And then the other writer was like, actually, I see more as a 75, 25 in my favor. And, and like, uh Oh, you know, um, and so be as upfront and clear as possible before you go down the road, because the further you go down the road, the more you've a sunk cost scenario where you've already written the script. And now the person says they want 75% of the writing and you're like, well, God damn it, that sucks. But also the script's already written. You know, if you haven't written anything then you can walk away, you have all the leverage to walk away. So it's just one of those things where try to get as much clarity and communication early in every situation as possible. Um, and ask all the questions you want to ask. And it sounds like you guys have done that with your reps. So that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, of course, like, like, since this is going to go out to a bunch of people who may be in this process, I have to confess that after I decided, okay, this is who I'm going with, I did have like a 12 hour nervous breakdown about, did I pick the right people? Did I just get married in like the Elvis chapel? Because especially right now when we haven't met face to face in person, like I don't really know anything about these people even though they did make like previous clients available to me and all of that so for anybody who is going through this process did you end up talking to the previous clients i did yeah i i spoke to i spoke to one who was very similar to me um and she she was really very transparent she even gave me like the total number of meetings that she had in her first year of representation with the managers i was talking to she talked to me about like details of projects she had sold thanks to meetings that they set up with her so she really she was like a very open book and I really, really appreciated that. And that did help me make a decision, but did not prevent me from freaking out and calling all of my friends and being like, did I just marry the wrong spouse? <laughs> Whenever I sell a spec, not always, but especially early on, the biggest ones I've sold, next 24 to 40 hours, I'm like always asking my wife, I'm like, God damn it, did we do this right? Could we have gotten more money? I feel like that doubt of doing the right decision is, is a very consistent thing when it comes to I mean anything but especially art you know 
because you're just like, man, is this, is this correct? Like, is there another opportunity out there that I should have done? When the good news, by the way, when going with representation is, I mean, it's not great to fire people, but like, if it's not working within two weeks or three weeks, you can let them go, you know, like it's okay. You know, I have had talked to people before. I had a client who agreed on a phone call to work. This is crazy to work on a TV show for free. True story. And then he called me and he's like, afterwards, he's like, yeah, so um, they, they're hiring me, but it looks like I'm not going to get paid. But I said yes in the phone call. I was like, what? So then we like, we were like, no, you, you know, no, we're not, you're not doing that or whatever, you know? And so if you haven't signed anything, it's okay. You know, even if you have, by the way, even if you sign something with a rep, you can get out of it. So I think sometimes people feel like they're locked into something. If they're working with a rep and that is a bad experience, you're not locked into anything. You know? do, you think your, do you think your client used you as an excuse? Like, hey, I want to do it for free, but my reps said. No, they, they, they set it up as a paying gig to us. And then they're on the phone. And they're like, and he was like, he didn't know he'd never done anything. And they're like, you'll get paid when the show gets made. Like until production, you get paid nothing. And we were like, that's not normal. That is not, it is, it was sketch to sketch, sketch, sketch. Um, I don't want to get into it too much. But it was one of those things where it was just like, nah, man, like the job of reps is to protect you um, and to make the, we are the people who pass on things. We are the people who deliver the bad news, you know, it is our job to make your life easier as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I feel like that was one of like, one of the things like, I mean, I only freaked out for 12 hours because that's just like the maximum length of time I can sustain a freak out, but then like one of the things that made me feel like okay like I do actually feel protected and taken care of and understood is like one of the first meetings we had I, I brought up an idea that would have involved me doing like a bunch of work for free and my reps were immediately like we're actually trying to get you work that pays you so maybe let's focus on the fact that you have two samples that we feel like maybe we could sell and mm. that you have great staffing samples and maybe don't like do free work just to collaborate with someone who's a name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I actually got to so like, oh, I'm, I'm protected. Um, but thank you. I mean, thanks. Thanks. Thanks Kevin for having me. And I've learned thank a lot all of you. from everybody. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, thanks everyone so for thank coming. You. Happy What's Thanksgiving. Time? Thank you everyone. Everybody. Um, we ran over Thank a little you. bit, but I appreciate you guys all coming and check out scriptsandscribes.com. We'll have links below of everyone's Twitters. Um, and uh, happy Thanksgiving. Thank you all. Bye, everybody. Thank, Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Happy Thanksgiving. Bye. Bye. Donate to your favorite indigenous cause. <laughs>